There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. Big no-no! Big no-no! Sex equals death, okay? Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. No, the sin factor. It's a sin. It's an extension of number one. And number three, Never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. I'm getting another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek of pop culture show broadcast in Long Island, New York. I'm host Timothy Marie, and we're back kicking off our brand new miniseries that we're doing for 2019. Last year, we did One Good Scare, where we reviewed every single Halloween movie up until the new one, including that one. And so if you want to listen to those, you can go back to our previous catalog and listen to that. But this year, we're doing What's Your Favorite Scary Movie as we take a look back at the Scream franchise. I uh, can't do it alone, and if you listen to the One Good Scare, you know I only have one co-host with me, Mr. Mike Wilson. How are you doing, Mike? The one and only co-host. Well, yeah. I mean, you know what's the funny thing? Um... I don't think I've recorded a podcast in person since we did our... Uh, wow. Yeah, because all my other stuff You've I do... You've been busy. Yeah, and, but also all my other podcasts I do, I do it via Skype, because all the other people I on um, my other podcast and on Anything Goes have uh, been people around the world. Uh-huh. Ooh, so, look at you, Mr. High Roller. Yeah, no, and Move like... It up. It's funny. There's, I am planning on uh, trying to get a podcast between somebody who... Obviously, here on the East Coast, somebody in the West Coast, and somebody in Australia, we're going to try and sync up our watches in order to review something for that. So that's going to be a real tricky scenario to do that, but it'll be fun. You guys still wear watches? Well, I mean, I think for, for the joke, it would be cool. But, I mean, you could have Apple watches and smart watches. I smart watch. I mean, Even I, though it, I like do nothing with it, and it would probably get broken. Yeah, and that'd be cool. But like uh, technology breaking really easily, and how things back in the past would uh, we would survive things that will play into something I'll bring up later on. But as Gear you know, S three—that's what I'm looking for. He what he said? The Samsung Gear S three. Oh boy! And so no, I'm, I'm talking about uh, with, nice. a, with a Nokia, like a uh, uh, push to talk phones and everything like that. Those things are freaking bulletproof or anything. Uh, yeah, the good old Nokia's. I, I, I maybe that was, shitty Windows phone I had. <laughs> it was like two years ago. I actually heard that little like chirp noise that looked like the push oh, to talk, and I was like, well, "What the hell?" I turned it. Oh, it was a construction work. I'm like, "Okay, that makes sense." You should set that as like your text messaging ringtone. And just to see how he'll freak out yeah. the, the noise of that. But as you can tell from the title, we're talking about screens. As you can so tell by how off track we're getting, because you know, because as the title says, anything goes and anything does go. We're talking about screens, so let's jump into our review of it right now. <laughs> Okay, now before we actually get to the movie itself, um, we had a, a little bit of a hard time, like because people that listen to the show really enjoyed our series on Halloween, 
And we kind of like racked our brains what we're going to talk about next. Why did you propose Scream? Well, I mean, it, there wasn't necessarily going to be a next. I didn't know if we were, were going to follow this up with something. I mean, I, I'm I'm pretty proud of what we did last year. So am I. I kind of feel, I feel the pressure, folks, of, of having to follow this up. So expect nothing but poor quality. This is going to absolutely suck. You will never get these hours of your life back. No, I'm just kidding. But, there, like, can't you say that in all podcasts or all, any form of entertainment or media that you digest? Well, I to mean. put off the inevitability that we're all going to die, so you try and have a little bit of joy, so that's why you consume media? Yeah, but this brings about death faster. This is this is like a slow death. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, okay. And well, I only say that because I kind of feel that I feel the pressure of topping or at least matching what we did, because I was yeah. very proud of that. Halloween is the series I'm most passionate for. That's why I pr- proposed that idea, right? Because you had done that with the the Potter cast mm-hmm. with like-minded friends, right? So I thought it was something cool to do. I didn't know there was going to be a follow-up. People were asking for it. I thank you all for the nice things you all had to say. Yeah, no, like I literally posted that. Like, um... you would send me like screen caps, and I still have them on my phone because they're just awesome, like cool shit people have tweeted. Yeah, about be, the like, Halloween podcast we did, and, when and I posted, asking for follow-ups. Exactly, and I posted that the fact that we were recording today, and like my co-host Jamie on the other podcast was just like, finally, <laughs> he's just excited that he posted like Michelle Obama like dancing gif, or, like he's excited for it, everything. So I, I needed a break though. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah. There, there's it, a huge pressure to this. Like, yeah. It, it, I'm the type of person where if I'm going to put my name on something, I, it has to meet my standards, which may be impossibly high sometimes. How do you tweak with your home media outlet like uh, setup and everything? I don't – it does not surprise me whatsoever. Well, at the same time, too, the, the goal I want to have is something that isn't never really dated. Like you could listen to this years down the road. And still get something out of it. Right. You know, I want it to be able to stand, stand the test of time. So we're going to be talking Which about is this. why I started talking about a fucking smartwatch that will probably be discontinued very soon. So. And we're, talk- we're, we're going to be reviewing a series that's so tr- uh, trenched in the 90s right yes. now. So, But to answer your question, I mean, this was pretty much the only other horror series I could come up with that I'm just as passionate about from end to end as Halloween. Yeah, and we didn't. We or also, close enough. We also didn't think like maybe we shouldn't do another horror movie series. We'd like I, at least I proposed we do the RoboCop series at one point, but then you were like, I don't want to watch RoboCop three again. I don't want to watch RoboCop three. Plus, there's also that shitty 1994 series to track down, oh. and there's the two uh, TV movies. I, which, I, I've seen some. I, there was some late nights watching Sci-Fi Channel, watching that once for me, and like when I thought I had insomnia for a little bit. It turns out after watching that series, I did not have insomnia. Yeah, I used to <laughs> willingly fucking rent the VHS from Blockbuster. Oh man, you, of you, the pilot. I mean, you with, you, with you, the you, stupid you, kid you, and the and the and the hologram woman. If like with rentals like that, it makes you wonder how Blockbuster went out of business. I mm. mean, if you were able to rent that, and RoboCop gets a hole blown through his chest, so he's dead. So let's put him on ice until. Twenty minutes later, when he's no longer on ice. God, <laughs> fuck! What did I do with my youth? I mean, it's not as bad. Let's as hire the guy who showed up at WCW. Let's hire the guy who looks like he played fucking powder to be RoboCop. <laughs> oh, seriously. And, and so, yeah, I look like that guy. I'd want to be dead too. And frozen. <laughs> you wake up with RoboCop screaming, "Kill me! Kill me! Kill me! Kill me!" You're like, you're like Ripley in Alien Resurrection, the failed clones Kill lying on the me. table. I'm like anyone from fucking Alien that's cocooned. <laughs> Kill me. <laughs> and so, yeah, we we came upon Scream, and 
And we took a little break first. Yeah. And, and you're right. A much needed break and everything because we've, and I know we said like sometime this year we're going to do this. And like so many other things that I am doing right now, it just came like, all right. Well, I'll eventually get to that. I will eventually do it. And I'm also not going to have a free day off for, like, the next couple of weeks, so. This is true. And so, like, that's why I'm like, okay. And when we hung out last week, I know we're dating ourselves here, but um, that's when you said, hey, you want to do the Scream uh, podcast? And I'm like, sure. I just want a good enough time to, like, prepare for it, you know? And do you think you have? I hope. Okay. <laughs> if I say that about every podcast I do. So That's true. I'm going into this exactly as I do every other one. All right. And let's get into the history of how this movie came about, and then we'll go into our personal history, and then we'll get into the movie review itself. And so it's kind of curious. So it's early. We're going to take a step back, everybody. We're going to go back to the early 1990s in Hollywood, where a young screenwriter, a struggling screenwriter by the name of Kevin Williamson, is trying to find a way to – be a success and everything because he's kind of like between jobs and everything and trying to find ways to make money. And he ends up taking a job as a house sitter when he's watched one late night. He's watching a news report on a killer from Florida, Gainesville, Florida, Gainesville, Florida, a.k.a. the Gainesville R- Ripper. Uh, Danny uh, uh, Rowling is the murderer, a person who murdered, I believe, five people over the course of months from uh, November of 89 to August of 1990. And, I mean, this person would go into uh, college uh, apartments and um, kill, mutilate, and then rape the corpses. Uh, it, it was a very a very a visceral way of killing. It wasn't just like a strangulation. Like, like no, this person is a very brutal killer and sparked the, an idea in Williams's head. Yeah, he, he uh, drafted up an 18-page treatment about a young woman alone in a house who's taunted over the phone and attacked by a masked killer. Um, very similar to When a Stranger Calls. Right. Very influenced by that. So, you know, he uh, he was also working on uh, another script that would go on to be teaching Mrs. Tingle. That one got, you know, shelved for a little while. He, he, he was able to sell it, but it didn't go to production. Yeah, so he focused all his efforts on this movie, which would be titled Scary Movie. Now, I know what you may be thinking. Isn't that the parody that makes fun? Yes. Yeah. But... Scream was originally titled Scary Movie. He was, you know, he wrote out the whole treatment, just trying to sell it as quick as possible. This was probably the worst time to do it, just because horror was really in a rut. Right. I mean, you think of the early 1990s, uh, the slasher genre is dead, because at this point, Jason has gone to hell, uh, Freddy is dead, and the curse of Michael Myers has been And Michael Myers is very cursed. Yeah, but but but, all, but, he, but even, like, the horror great directors, they, they're shit in the bed. Like, no, you think of, like, Wes Craven, Toby Hooper, and Carpenter, the early 1990s. Village of the Damn Tanked. Oh, there's my, my one friend uh, listener, other co-host uh, guy, he's probably pulling his hair out just the mentioning of Village of the Damned. He absolutely uh, hates that movie, but... You think of it like there are there are a few moments of horror in the early 1990s because you think of Silence of the Lambs that swept the Oscars that year, but everybody says like, well, that's not really a horror movie. That's a thriller, I think. But I call it bullshit. That's a horror movie through and well, through. Horror evolved into the mainstream, I think, due to its popularity. People loved it. Hollywood took notice and they started adding those horror elements into like dramas and thrillers, and especially like erotic fatal, thrillers, yeah, everything. Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct, Basic Instinct, Silence of the Lambs. These are all movies that have those horror elements. You have your you have your killer, you have your you know slasher using the knife in many ways, right? So 
horror was still there, but it kind of merged with other genres. But like the straight up horror genre was kind of it, it tanked. No, and even I, Wes Craven's you know very meta New Nightmare, which is criminally underrated. Yeah, it that one tanked as well. Right. I, I mean, like it made money, but it, didn't, it wasn't a blockbuster. It made its budget back. If I'm not, if it, it barely made its budget back, if I remember correctly. But I think as much as I love Wes Craven's New Nightmare and how meta that movie is, that seems like a first draft. What's going to become really crystallized with this movie? Now I know Wes wrote and directed New Nightmare, so it, it definitely seems kind of harmonious at the fact that he was thinking about meta ways of doing horror movies, and that's and he comes across the script of Scary Movie when it was eventually written. Over, I think, a course for a weekend. Like he banged, like Kevin Williamson banged at the first draft over the course of three days. He wanted to get it done and shopped it around. Yeah, because he didn't think it was going to be made. This is like a calling card script to get done. Well, fortunately, you know, it was liked in many circles. There was a bit of a bidding war with Miramax winning out. Yes, Mo- and mostly uh, of of the Weinstein brothers, Bob, the the, the better one, yes. better of the two. He was the one that really, you know, headed up a lot of this. He he was the guy that really had Williamson's back in a lot of ways. Mm. Uh, he was very involved. Um, they did want him to, like, tone back the gore and everything. Right. But once Wes Craven was brought on, which was that that was its own, you know, little struggle. They couldn't find a director for the longest time. No, and even at one point, like, Oliver Stone wanted to be involved with the movie and everything. And you think of Oliver Stone at that time coming off of Natural Born Killers and, like, how – Media is so infused in this movie, it makes sense like that would be like a, a good pairing with Natural Born Killers. But you think of the sensibility of Natural Born Killers done with the Scream script, uh, it would be a little, I think, a little bonkers. It'd probably be, uh, it wouldn't have fit correctly. I think the sensibilities that Craven brought to this movie was very, was the right way to go. And the fact that Miramax launched Dimension, like, yes, the Dimension had put out Halloween uh, 6, The Curse of Michael Myers, but that was not a success. And Scream would go on to be the first successful Dimension, and Dimension being the more mainstream movies that Miramax would do because Miramax at the time was more doing the independent art house movies and winning Oscars and everything. And uh, you could say Kevin Smith movies as well. But no, Kevin Smith movies like made a good amount of money, but they were definitely niche audience. Dimension, on the other hand, was like, no, we're playing for everybody. We're playing for middle America at this point. Yeah, a, a lot of things were really starting to come together, and Scream was at the core of this. Um, by the time... Craven definitely did sign on. Like, Bob Weinstein saw him as the perfect fit for this because of its mix of horror, but also comedy. Right. It's quite a bit of dark comedy in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Bob Weinstein was the one who convinced the MPAA to give it its R rating, which we'll get into as well, because Mm -hmm. they were fighting an NC-17 rating because of the the levels of gore. And, I mean, we'll specify what scenes we know of that have have that. But he sold it to him as a dark comedy. And, and that's really what got is. the it's R like, rating. Like, uh, tongue firmly placed in cheek when it came to this movie. Like, that's the kind of comedy that's that's uh, presented here. Yeah, like every other horror director pretty much turned the thing down. No, until... you had, like, people like uh, Sam Raimi, George, George Romero, Romero, and I'm surprised they didn't go to Carpenter, but I think Carpenter was probably, like, he didn't want to do anything really horror-based or anything like that. But uh, at that point, like, he had... At that uh, early in the, he had done like memoirs of Invisible Man and Village of the Dam. Like those were not big hits. Maybe he didn't want to do horror at that point. So who knows? Yeah, and I mean, like, I I kind of feel like Wes Craven took it, no pun intended, as one last stab at horror, because hmm. e- even he said he was kind of getting it was weighing on his conscience the level of misogyny that can be interpreted in horror movies where it's all these women always getting killed and everything yeah and all this gore and uh craven you know he had a lot of reservations about making another 
gore movie. Because he's incredibly conscious of what, like you're saying, about what people could be interpreted in these movies and everything. And you have to imagine that he's a person that probably read the critics' reactions to all of his movies at this point. And a lot of, a lot of the criticisms that, that were lauded against the slasher genre were the fact that, like, these are just, like, misogynistic um, male fan- fantasies. I mean, uh, like, you think of, like, Silent Night, Deadly Night, um, like, it had the PTA, like, trying to put, literally pull that movie after one week in theater. Maniac, you think of the poster where he's got the, the hand of holding a woman's head and he's got literally a bulge in his pants at this point. Yeah, it, it, like, you look at the cover, like, he, he literally does have an erection there. And like obviously, Body Double by Brian De Palma was, but also that was very kind of he's making fun of himself in that movie, and so, and Craven didn't start out to wanting to be a horror director. He just wanted to make movies and knew horror was the best way to get in, and it was the best way to like be able to make money like cheaply and everything. So, and he wanted to do different things. It's kind of like how Martin Scorsese didn't want to just make gangster movies. That's why he made like the Age of Inno- Age of Innocence in between, like Goodfellas and Casino, and so on. Well, the thing that inevitably got Craven to sign on for good is that when they were able to get Drew Barrymore cast in the lead as the lead role of Sydney originally. Uh, Craven felt that, like, the, f- the fact that he's got an established actress here, and this was really part of Ju- Drew Barrymore's real comeback after, you know, she started out as a child actor in E.T., but once she had her teens, she ran into drug problems and a lot of bad stuff, but cleaned up her act and by the mid-90s was make it, was starting to make a bit of a comeback. Just right. a year before, she had a small role in Batman Forever as one mm. of Two-Face's girlfriends. Yeah, her, her and... Debbie um, Mazar. Debbie Mazar. So once Craven saw that, like, a big-name actress was involved with this, he, he signed right on. And also, like, he did have an interaction with apparently a young fan, and it's like, and he says, he said in a different documentary that, like, this kid came up to him and specifically said, like, oh, you got to make another movie like Last Task and Laugh. You got to make another movie that kicks ass. And he thought to himself, like, oh, man, I'm getting old. I'm, I'm getting soft in my old age or anything. So he, that's another reason why he came back to do Scream. Yeah. So continuing with the casting, though, Drew Barrymore was the first one. But right before, you know, they went to go film, Drew Barrymore, she uh, had some commitments she couldn't get out of. So she suggested, actually to take the smaller role of the character we first meet in the opening of Casey, Casey Becker, and that she would be killed off right away. And this definitely would come as a shock to the audience that this th- this name is going to get bumped off in the first, you know, 10 minutes. Yeah, the, the, the Casey's a kind of a throwaway character in this movie. Sure, she's like the death of, of her and, and her boyfriend, Steve North, like, or like the MacGuffin that gets the story going, or you can even say Maureen Prescott, the MacGuffin of this movie. But... You wonder, like, oh crap! We like, how are we going to try and sell this movie? We're going to kill off our biggest character. It's a risk. Yeah, it's a a huge risk to take. I mean, fortunately, the cast was rounded out by many people that just fucking scream '90s. Oh yeah, at this point, (laughs) scream '90s. (laughs) (laughs) Sydney was recast by Nev Campbell, who was, you know, kicking ass in television on Party of Five, and and she had been the cult hit, the craft before this. Yep, just a year before this, she definitely was a natural for it. You had freaking Skeet Ulrich, who fell off the face of the freaking earth as Billy. Yeah, it's like the, the boyfriend. Yeah, I think like Jericho, the TV series, like like in early 2000s, like that's the only other thing I've seen him in. Yep. Jamie Kennedy is Randy, the geeky movie obsessed friend. 
Uh, Matthew Lillard, who once fucking he got the role of Shaggy, he of uh, Scooby Doo, he dropped off the face of the fucking earth. Until recently, apparently he's been recast, which is very disheartening and yep. everything. He stopped doing everything just to he, to make those Shaggy dollars. I, I mean, at that point, would you like? I don't blame him for doing that because that's a steady paycheck coming in, and everything. So well, I, I, I'd take other things too. But oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> like he would go on. I think Thirteen Ghosts is another big thing he did. SLC Punk. SLC Punk. Oh my God, I forgot about that. Yeah, he he. That man, you think a late nineties? Matthew, yeah, Lillard. Matthew Lillard is definitely the, like the fa- one of like Mount Rushmore faces of late nineties movies, right there. We have Rose McGowan as Tatum, mm-hmm. Stu's uh, Matthew Lillard's character, Stu's uh, girlfriend, mm-hmm. and her brother. In the, in the good old days of working with Miramax. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're gonna bring up Harvey. I think in further discussion, when we get to Scream Three. Yeah. That, I mean, I don't think that what one of the plot elements of that movie is, cannot be coincidental. Oh, my God, man. If it is, it is the ultimate form of fucking karma. But, yeah. Anyway. But anywho, that's like your core cast right there of the teens. The one thing you notice about all these kids is that there's something seriously the fuck wrong with all of them. Now, the the movie goes on to establish itself as a real uh, whodunit murder mystery type thing where mm. we don't know who the killer is. All we know is what the killer looks like and what he wears, which we'll get into. Uh, continuing with the cast, we got, uh, David Arquette, which this really was his first biggest role, wasn't it? His yeah. first major role. I'm trying to think what he had done. Previously. All I knew of him previously was in Airheads as the surfer guy from the radio station. <laughs> hey guys, let me back in. Let me back in. No, he left the station, man. You're out. Yep. And he would go on to, to elevate his career further with his, uh, 2000 win as WCW world heavyweight champion. So we do have quite the, quite the sports figure on our hands. Uh, how long was he champion? couple weeks i think because uh, it just led up to the pay-per-view and then he and then he let jeff jarrett win it yeah in another swerve when he turned on diamond dallas page and and now he's in outlaw mud show uh backyard wrestling uh matches where he's getting he got his throat cut and with a fluorescent light tube by, by a bank robber a former bank robber <laughs> and so this is wrestling uh, well continuing we have the news reporter gail weathers which i i mean when you make a name like that, you must really not be trying. Gail Weathers. <laughs> Gail Weathers. Why I, is she not doing, why was she what? not played by like Al Roker or something? <laughs> now I'm just imagine Al Roker falling in love with David Arquette the, the entire time of this movie. And she's about to get stabbed. Here's what happened. You're a duck in the woods. Slash, slash, slash. Oh, man. Uh, Gail Weathers. Gail she should Weathers. be a, should be a meteorologist with a name like that. She shouldn't be the tabloid. Didn't uh, she, isn't that a line in a movie? In one of these movies? I think she, yeah, she pokes fun of her own name like that. In uh, like Scream 2 or something? Something. But, uh, she was played by Courtney Cox, who, it's very surprising to find someone that successful at that point, because she was the, the, one of the leads on Friends, and Friends was killing it. Back you think then. she would have played? Sydney, if you were going hierarchy of like status of like who's more famous, I wouldn't think she'd be in this fucking movie. I think that she'd be in something much bigger. Right, but she she had played the nice girl as Monica on that show, and so she wanted to do something different. So she wanted to play, in her words, the bitchy character in this movie. But that Gail Weathers, him, uh, her attitude kind of is. So that's why she took the role. Yep, and we have a uh, you know a couple more names: W. Earl Brown, who played her cameraman Kenny. Yeah, uh, Joseph Whip, who played Sheriff Burke, who is a callback because he was in a Nightmare on Elm Street as a sergeant. He's one of the cops that, uh, as an underling to John Saxon. Yep, uh, Lawrence Hecht is Neil Prescott, Sidney's father. Uh, Leif Schreiber, who is a very minor character in this, but whose role is extremely important throughout the entire the first three movies, mm-hmm. he played Cotton Weary. Yeah, and. 
who who is uh, wrongfully accused of a murder, and we will get into that when we get on there. Yeah, Ray Donovan um, himself. We have a cameo by Linda Blair, who's just a TV reporter, and we mm. have Henry Winkler, Fonzie himself, as Principal Hembry. Hey! And the thing about all these characters is that they are th- there's just something kind of off about all of them, and it goes to the whole whodunit thing, mm. where you have the real possibility that any of these characters could be the suspects. And there's little hints dropped here and there. There's all kinds of things from, from what they're wearing to just minor lines they drop about, oh, I was just with this person. But it comes right after a scene where that person was being stalked by the killer, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So they go a very long way to make you feel through everything, through lines, dialogue, body language, oh, yeah. tone, there's, there's intonation of, of voice. looks that people give to each other. Yes. And so, um, paired with like music cues to kind of like really accentuate these moments for the audience. Now, for most of you listening to this right now, you've probably seen this movie already, but we're not going to delve into spoiler territory yet. We're going to have ourselves a little fun. We're going to draw this out. Yeah, and that was a question we had even before we started recording. Like, all right, should we just like? We're not going to blow our load in the first five minutes. Well, we're yeah. men, man. We take we we take it after three hours. I'm just gonna leave that there. I'm gonna let that dangle. I should have said, give it fuck. <laughs> Edit. All right. We, 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 we don't blow our load after five minutes. We go all the way. Exactly. Moving on. So, yes, uh, this was filmed pretty much in the spring of 1996 with a budget of 15 million bucks. Uh, Weinstein's wanted Vancouver, but they didn't get it. So location scouts looked in, you know, North Carolina, but ultimately they turn to California, the, you know, the place by that California used for many movies, but by then was getting expensive and expensive. So they chose a couple of different cities in Sonoma. I think I'm sorry, so, uh, Sonoma so, County, yeah, Sonoma County is north of San Francisco. Yeah. A couple of different places. Uh, they approached Santa Rosa, Rosa High School wanting to film there. And this became a complete fucking shit show because they initially said yes. Yep. But they wanted to see the script. Once they saw it, the school board completely rejected this because the part of the reason, too, is that recently, was it in that town or was it a in, in that town? county of Sorona? In that county. Uh, Polly Class was a, uh, a young, young eight year old girl that she had been kidnapped and then strangled to death and found uh, like a day later and everything. And the person responsible was caught and was literally just the trial was just beginning of this crime when this happened. Right. And so the. The school board called a town meeting at this point, and like everybody and their mother showed up to protest and speak to of, blame movies. Yes, and they didn't want to have the, I guess, the stigma of like a movie where teens get killed pretty brutally, uh, synonymous with this town. So they said no, and so this is like we like a couple of days, like maybe a few weeks before they start shooting, and they have to scramble to try and find another place. So in there was a town of. Sonoma, where it's in the same county, and they're like, yeah, sure, you can shoot here, no problem. It was the Sonoma Community Center, southeast of Santa Rosa. That's where they used the high school. It used to be a high school, so they did it up to look like one, right. and they were able to shoot there. And even, it gets to the point that you, if you look at the end of the credits of this movie, there is a special text that says, and, like, because there's all the ways, you have, like... You have this typical special thanks, to in the list of people, and right yeah, below that. Yeah, it'll usually be, like, uh, politicians, like, certain towns or certain organizations that help um, contribute to the movie. However, this said no thanks to the Santa Rosa High School, which is like, damn, that's like, very that's vindictive. I, I mean, I, I feel like 
I, I understand like, why they did it. I understand why the well, I understand why the school wouldn't want them there. It's like just explain it like that, but maybe don't do it in such a we don't want you and your disgusting movie kind of way. Just like, but also, sorry, this is dredging up a really really bad time right now. Please understand, or like contact some other community, like you know, help. Don't yeah. just say, oh, we don't want you and your filth here. Yeah, but school violence will play into Scream Three or going into Scream Scream Three. We'll get into that. Later. Oh yeah, in, in that wonderful era. Yeah. So, but while location scouting, they happened to stop at a uh, certain house that they were looking at. I mm-hmm. believe, wasn't it Casey Becker's house? Uh, what, where they found the mask itself? I believe so. And no, it's the, um, I think the exterior of that house is that they use for Tatum's, Tatum's house. house. Okay. Where, yes. but like, I don't know if it's the same house or it's nearby the house from Shadow of a Doubt. But, yeah, well, yeah, this the, one of the houses that was used was actually used, uh, some nearby houses were used in classic Hollywood films. Right. But in one house, while just innocently location scouting, in one of the bedrooms, there happened to be this, like, Halloween mask right. just sitting on, like, the, the post of a bed. And there was something about it that Wes Craven saw that he couldn't get out of his mind. Like, this is, this is perfect. Mm. It had... A very, it, it was a white face with like dark, almost like bean looking eyes with kind of that like weird roundish curve. Right. And a long mouth and like a, like a pointed up like snout kind of, but yeah. like a long triangular mouth, very similar to the famous painting, The Scream. Yeah. And Wes Craven, he absolutely loved it. Because at this point in the script, like it's literally just said a ghost face where, and it's covered, so it's very vague in the script of how it's discovered and like how it was described, I should say. And the costume department and everything, like we're doing concept art about what could work, and these look like like Ninja Turtles villains or everything. If you look at the concept art of it, tr- it was not working. I tried to get very close. They got uh, K and B effects, the always awesome K and B effects mm-hmm. for this movie, including Greg Nicotero. So they were and, in good hands. And Howard Berger, Howard who, Berger, and Robert Kurtzman. So they were all in good hands. Yeah, but they just couldn't come up with something that was good enough. So and, it, and then when they saw this mask, they're like, "Do it!" Like, and they try and like, "All right, let's try and much like how." Tommy Lee Wallace like uh, adapted a William Shatner Kirk mask to, to the Michael Myers mask. They tried to do the same thing for the Scream mask or for the Ghostface mask, and it's just not working. So ultimately, they f- they found the uh, owners of that of that the designers of that mask mm-hmm. and literally just bought the rights of, to the mask from them. They like bought it completely. Now does that mean like? That's it. There was just one payment. That's it, and they never get any more money from it going. I think forward. so. I think they just bought it outright, just the ownership. Because who would have thought? You know? Yeah, I know. Who the fuck would have thought? I, I mean, I hope it's not as bad as like the guy who owned Victoria's Secret, where like he had made a few million dollars and everything, and he had sold like he had made like he made a good amount of money, but then he sold it, and then Victoria's Secret uh, went on to become the worldwide phenomenon. It was and he ended up like jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, and so I hope it wasn't something like that. I hope that he was able to continue, the, the owners were able to continue getting profits from it. But yeah, so they purchased the rights to it, and Father Death eventually would go on to become Ghostface. Yeah, um, the Scream Killer is typically referred to as Ghostface. Like, that's a line that Tatum uses towards the her death scene. Yeah. Where she goes, oh, help me, Mr. Ghost, you know, don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. But that's... That's commonly because, as we know from the from all the sequels, it's a different person under that mask each time. Yeah, it's a different killer. So, the killer is commonly referred to as Ghostface by fans. We're going to refer to him as Ghostface in this one, right? When I was looking for gifts, when I was tweeting that they were doing this, um, 
Like I typed in just scream at first, and it was just a lot of gifts of people screaming. So I'm like, all right, fine. I just typed in Ghostface, and that's when it popped up, along with Ghostface Killer. And so it was like, okay, it was either referred to as Ghostface going forward. Yes. So filming, you know, took place during the spring. Yeah, it was like a 41-day shoot. Something like that. 21 of those days were were filmed filming the film's third act, pretty much. Third act. I should just said the word film a lot. Filming yeah. the film's <laughs> film. Third act, pretty much, it, over the course of 21 days. It all takes place in the character of Stu's house. Yeah, and they refer to it as a scene 118. Scene 118, and it had, you know, scene one. And I think they went through the whole alphabet, scene 118, A, A B, B, C, D. D. Like, because it's like how you break it up into little individual scenes. Because every time you, like, say if you're in the living room and then you go to the dining room, that's a new scene. That's a new slug line and everything. So that's a technically a new scene. So you think of all the times they go through so many different rooms outside, Stu house and then outside of his house and inside the house and everything and all the kind of location changes, even though you're on the same property, it's like, I imagine like going to like double letters and like triple letters and anything, but, and to the point that the crew made up shirts at the end of it, like, I survived scene 118. Yeah, it, it must have been a cold spring because one of the things we watched uh, Scream Inside Story and everyone kept talking about how cold it was. And even poor Rose McGowan, when she goes in the garage and, yes. and, uh, she, she's got a little bit of nipplage. Yes, it was very nipply out. That's, that's, very, you could cut glass with those. Exactly. But also, it was at this point where I think the original cinematographer was uh, Mark Irwin. I think that was the... He was fired a week before principal photography was to be completed because Craven reviewed some of the dailies and said it, the footage was out of focus and unusable. Uh, Irwin was initially ordered to fire his camera crew, but he re- retorted that if his crew were to be fired, they would also have to fire him. So... They just fired him and replaced him with Peter Deming, who finished. They all finished the film. And I think Peter Deming would go on to photograph the the rest of the tri- the rest of the series. I think he used the most consistent cinematographer afterwards. Yeah, that's another cool thing about the series is that most of the behind the scenes people were very consistent throughout the whole. I know the first three movies. At yeah, least. I, I, same editor Patrick Lucier, who would go on to direct like My Bloody Valentine, 3D, and like Drive Angry, and, and who almost co-wrote. What would have been the new Halloween movie yeah. in one of its many incarnations over the past ten years? Um, obviously, Williamson would write um, Scream Two. He would get story credit on Scream Three with Aaron Kruger, um, and just a lot of people and a lot of the same producers came over. That's the one thing that's different between this series and the Halloween franchise, which we covered last year, is that rather than like almost every movie having a whole different kind of creative cr- uh, crew coming on besides a few producers, this is very a tight knit family that. Did this entire series throughout. Yeah, and, and one of the things I absolutely love about the Scream franchise, I guess you could call it, is that there aren't too many movies, and that each one really does. It doesn't. You don't. You don't roll your eyes and say, "Oh, th- really?" This like it really does feel like a true continuation mm-hmm. that you could deem necessary. Like, yeah, you could watch the first one as just by itself. Yeah. Well, the second one, I'll get into that when we get into that. But each each one serves a each film serves a purpose, and that goes with the very meta aspect of it, where this movie is very self aware of horror movies, and the killers' kills are patterned on horror movies, and it's love for horror movies. Even Randy, the the film geek, goes around and says if they'd watch Prom Night, they'd save time. There's a formula to it. It's a very simple, simple formula. formula. Everybody's Everyone's a, a suspect. suspect. You have the killer who calls his victims and, you know, threatens them and wants to play a game about horror movies. And the menacing voice of the killer, played by voice actor Roger L. Jackson, mm-hmm. who during all his 
the filming with the actors, he would not be in the room with them. He would be off somewhere else. Wes Craven wanted that, and he'd be on the phone with them, literally. He, he never wanted the cast to see them because he wanted them to really be afraid. Right. And, like, this guy that you've never met is saying all these horrible things to you. And, like, no, they, they, like some people was trying to find, like, is he, like, is there no photos of him? Like, no, there are photos of him. If you want oh, yeah, to look so, up, you can find him. But if he does interviews, he makes sure the lights are off and he acts as goofy and menacing as possible. Oh, yeah. And he definitely hands it up for that, for sure. But there's, there's horror movie references. There's, there's movie references out the ass yeah, in general. Yeah, pop culture in, in general. But tons of horror movie references. And the, the this thing, it, it really helps poke fun of the horror genre. I think that's why it's so loved is because at that point, much of horror had become a joke. Yes. You know, it had become a self-parody when you have Freddy Krueger, you know, wearing the power glove, killing people. Saying, I beat no, my high score. Yeah, I beat my high score and fucking... Paul Rudd yelling at a nurse. Just give me a doctor. With a baby. And, and and then later in that fucking Oscar winner of a movie, I got to take a shower. Why? To stay fresh, you know, because just when I'm in the middle of, like, being someplace, I just have to take a shower to stay fresh. Like I said in in the Halloween podcast for Curse of Michael Myers, it reminded me of the Beavis and Butthead episode. I hope I said this. It reminded me of the one Beavis and Butthead episode when they're at the drive thru watching the horror movie, and the sorority girl comes back and says, oh, all my sorority sisters are naked and decapitated. I bet the killer's still here and looking for me. I know, I'll take a shower. <laughs> and uh, it did. It just became a fucking parody of itself. So I guess, I guess that was kind of Kevin Williamson's mindset is like, and this is speculation, Kevin Williamson's mindset being like, you know what, horror is already kind of made fun of itself, so why don't I make fun of it but still present a compelling story that there's a real threat here that you could be scared about? Right, and the thing is with this is that it is – it pokes fun of it but still works within the confines of a slasher movie. And now as it goes on, people can label criticism that it becomes more and more of a cliche going forward. And that this one had the real bite to it that it was like – breaking uh, genres expectations down everything and that's something we'll explore as we go on well at the same time too each of the sequels explores a different avenue of filmmaking like you have the second one is the sequel the third yeah. one is the trilogy the fourth one is the remake is the remake you know a decade later after mm -hmm. the last one um but it the filming process, it, it wasn't a smooth ride, as we've been saying. Early on, Bob Weinstein, he really didn't like the ghost face mask. He didn't think it was scary. No. He said how there was, like, I think, like, a good, like, 30 minutes where nothing happens, like, no scary kills or anything happens. So right. Stuff was edited in that helped pace it along. But in order to prove him wrong, they Patrick Lussier very quickly pieced together the opening with mm -hmm. Drew Barrymore, sent it to him, and he was immediately silenced. He yeah. said, you know, you guys do whatever... Do whatever you're doing the right thing. Right. So they won over Bob Weinstein. Despite all the roadblocks, there was still so much positivity and hope really going on. Like everyone was very much behind this project. And it premiered in December of 1996 around Which is Christmas very, time. Very curious because you think of nobody drops horror movies in December because you like you. That's where the family movies are out or Oscar movies come out in, in the holiday season. Nobody does horror movies, but that was the. Idea. It was the counter programming to anything that would be going on around Christmas around 1996. And this was something that that Christmas in '96 you you would have had a it would have been a hard sell because like we said before, it was originally given an NC-17 rating. Wes Craven submitted it eight fucking times of you know eight times. And the what we said about Bob Weinstein telling them oh it's more of a comedy than anything else is the thing in the end that 
And they most of their compl- the MPAA's complaints were intensity, like shots lingering too long. So there was or like s- it was trims going on, and we'll point them out, especially in the opening. There was a lot of trims at least yeah. to the final shot of the opening set piece that we'll get into, and it, it just seemed like like the YCs couldn't like had so much power in Hollywood at that point that they were able to sway the judgment of the MPAA like that they were able to get an R rating, and so the movie comes out and it made like. Six million dollars open the weekend. It came in third, but then the second weekend, the exact amount, no droppage whatsoever. Yeah, it just kept going up. And like the standard is like between forty and fifty percent drop off between opening to second weekend because so much of mainstream Hollywood movies bank on that first opening three days, and so it's like okay. It didn't drop anything, and it made money. And then the third week, it went up to $10 million, and it kept going and going, and it grew into make $100 million in the U.S. alone. I believe it was in theaters for about 31 weeks. Right, and it, like, I think it's like the total count was like $173 million worldwide. We have, yeah, we have domestic gross $103,046,663 for domestic. Worldwide lifetime gross $173,046,663. Based so, on a $15 million budget. Yep. So that's needless to say that was a success. That's pretty damn good. And, yeah. and they were, yeah, and it remained the highest grossing until just recently with the new Halloween. Yeah. So it is it, that. So that is how the history of like the going into the Halloween. It's uh, wow. I said Halloween. I scream. <laughs> um, Fifth highest grossing film in 1996, you, and that was coming out in December. It's ridiculous. Oh no, sorry, 15th. My bad. 15th. Um, Up there with Independence Day and Mission Impossible. And he'd imagine those as blockbusters anyway. So I'll ask you, what's your personal history? When did you first see Scream? I first saw Scream, I would say, a year later, somewhere around a year later. Now that, well, now that I know when it, um, when it actually premiered in December, I must have seen it around September or October of 1997 because I was in eighth grade at the time. And I was seeing, I knew what Scream was because, you know, you see commercials for everything. I saw commercials for Scream 2 coming out. And usually back in those days, you would have, like, they would have its theatrical run. Months later, after the theatrical run, you get it come out on VHS or the very early days of DVD. It might get a DVD release. And then about a year after it came out, you'd start seeing it on cable, Mm -hmm. you know. Like, right before it would come out on home video, pay-per-view would get it and whatnot. But coming out on cable was pretty much the last stop. Well, actually, no, I'd say network network TV. Basic cable or network TV was, like, the last stop. I'm talking, like, movie channel cable. Yeah. I watched the uh, Stars premiere of it. I watched it with my step-siblings, who were all about it. Now, I had already seen Halloween over the summer. And my brain was fried as a result. My life was ruined. I couldn't see my own shadow without curling into the fetal position <laughs> and being terrified. Everything scared the shit out of me. So I had my step-siblings over. Uh, we were going to watch Scream. My mother was vehemently against me watching Scream. And she said, if you cannot, if you have just as many problems as that, it's your own damn fault, you know? So we watched, we watched Scream, and I was impressed to hell with it. Like, I wasn't... I think Halloween was the apex for me because I, I didn't find myself terrified like I did Halloween. I feel a lot of that had to do with, you know, the comedy elements. Right. The self-awareness, you know, establishing the rules of horror, as we will get into. Also a bit with the music. Uh, Mark, This was Marco Beltrami's first major feature film. Yeah, and first, like, horror movie because he was not a – he didn't grow up a horror movie fan. No. 
And I do feel that his score fits, but it does not have the memorability that other classic horror scores have had. Suspiria, Halloween, Nightmare There's not that, like a motif like that runs through it like that you can hum. You have that kind of ethereal like female voice that kind of but that that's like Sydney's theme. Like you're like Aah. Every every piece fits each scene well. Yeah. But at the same like time I, I hate to I hate to use the word generic mm-hmm. but it does feel like ring, 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 you know, ring. generic generic uh, violin piece that accentuates fear, mm-hmm. that accentuates escape, must get away from this killer, or accentuates sadness. I'm thinking about something sad from the past. You know, everything fits, but it just doesn't – I don't find myself thinking about it later. It's not like one of those scores you want to go back and let's do it by itself, mm-hmm. separate from the movie, because you just be like you're just getting rather emotions rather than – feeling like, oh, this definitely fits this moment. This definitely reminds you of this moment here. Yeah, so I watched the film, absolutely loved it. Went to bed thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to get through my day? How am I going to sleep? It turns out that is probably the last time I truly remember myself having the best night's sleep I ever had. Hmm. I never felt so that fucking energized. In a way. It's, it's, like, it's like when you watch the cartoon and you hear the, the – you see the character waking up, the sun shining on him, and you hear the the flute music, do 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 do, and they went ah, you know, the sun smiling. Mm-hmm. I felt like that the next morning. I never felt so energized from a night's sleep in my life after watching Scream. <laughs> so immediately then, I was interested in seeing Scream too. I didn't go see it in theaters, you know. I did. I waited till it came out on uh, VHS. The the following year, nineteen ninety eight. Um, but after that, after seeing the original Scream, I was hooked. I was totally hooked on it. And that's, that, that and Halloween were really the two movies that got the ball rolling. After that, I wanted, I wanted to watch it all now. Were you hooked on it like hooked on phonics? No. I knew how to read very well back then. Are you sure? I'm positive. Okay. (laughs) So, my, this is probably the first horror movie I ever really saw. I mean, like, I had seen The Terminator before this, and you people could argue that I think that's a horror movie with the that science fiction elements the, in m- it. The one reoccurring nightmare of being killed by a, a movie character I've had is The Terminator. Like, I've had fucking Halloween dreams where Michael Myers chased me. I have had multiple dreams where I die at the hands of The Terminator. Mm-hmm. I've had multiple dreams where I am Kyle Reese. And I die at the hands of Terminator in scenes he survived, <laughs> and I die in more gruesome ways than he did. Did he tell me that one, like, he, like, punched through your chest or something like that? No, it was, I had a dream where I, it was, it was the scene in the Tech Noir bar. Okay. Where they're having the shootout, and he has, like, his big machine gun with him. I'm, you know, firing, shooting, and I have the fucking music playing in my brain. I'm just trying to find any cover to get away, and the only place I could dive under is a fucking, like, table booth against the wall, and I see him descending over me, and I'm like, I'm fucked. Like, I'm I'm literally trapped and cornered, and all of a sudden he starts letting loose, and I feel, it feels like someone's punching me in the fucking chest. Like, I feel these bullet impacts hit, and the more it happens, eventually it stops, I just feel, like, just weak and weary, like, like... There, there's no pain in my body. I just feel I, I feel like I'm I feel like I'm falling asleep in my dream. And immediately after that, when like my eyes close in the dream, I wake up and my chest hurt in all the spots I was shot at. Jeez. My chest, I felt pain in my chest from literally where I was like shot at. And then there was the other one where where like it's at the end 
except uh, in the uh, factory, except he still had most of his skin, and I'm, like, trying to hit him with the fucking pipe. Mm-hmm. He then, the backhand swing he gives actually cleaved off the entire top left corner of my skull, <laughs> and that part of my brain included. And oh, yet somehow no. I still survived. <laughs> But, but uh, you know, I eventually fucking died from it. Now, I woke up, I had a headache there. Oh, jeez. So, I have dreams where I die. This is the <laughs> sick fuck I am. I need help. <laughs> yes, you do. Because um, I remember this was probably early November 97. Where well, just, just a, I remember my, my old coworker, Tony, you met him. Yeah. I remember there would be times I would tell him these a lot of these fucked up dreams I had. I tell him, man, I had another, another fucked up dream. And he's like, oh, what shitty 80s movie did you die in this time? <laughs> yes, like, I died in a sleepaway camp. They got up my penis. Ah! Oh, I died in the breakfast club. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, you shoot yourself with a flare gun. <laughs> That's how you die. Dolph Lundgren killed me in the ring after James Brown sang me to the ring. <laughs> <laughs> Get down! Bam! You never got in America. Live in America. I feel good. All right. So go, go. You good? I got the spirit of James Brown in me now. I remember this because my parents had gone out. Like, as they had had a date and they wanted to go out for dinner, so my sisters were watching me. And I guess they convinced my mom to rent Scream. And I remember this saying, like, I wanted to watch it because it's like my annoying little brother, like, saying, like, oh, no, you can't watch this. No, I want to watch this. No, you shouldn't. I want to watch it. Okay. And how old were you? Like, five? Oh, God. Or, like, I just turned six at this point. Oh, God. And I remember because I had this big um, couch pillow in front of my face that kind of, like, came up to, like, my like nose at this point. And it's the opening sequence that we'll get into here that, like, traumatized me. This just looked back to me. Now you go, okay? I'm like, what? Oh, okay. It, 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 I, I, this and Halloween H2, like, with the first two, like, slash moves, I saw at, like, seven and, like, like six and, like, eight. So it was just like, yeah, these, uh, these moves. problems now. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, it explains everything. I'm perfectly fine. I'm a functioning adult in a society. This is a man's world. <laughs> I'll get the Blast James Brown on the way home. I'll uh, be happy now. Oh, me too, man. Now that I signed up for Spotify. And so the movie opens up with we open on this nice house in the middle of the uh, like wilderness and everything, like out in the farms and everything. And we have Casey Becker played by Drew Barrymore getting these phone calls from a very uh, strange voice that keep and these phone calls getting escalating into further and further. They're kind of flirty and cute at first. He pretends yes. that he's got the wrong number, but then he calls back to apologize. But he keeps calling back, asking her what she's doing. You know, she's making Jiffy Pop. She shakes the little tin before she puts it on the stove. Did you ever make popcorn like that? I never have. We always no. had the, the fucking Pop Secret bags that you just throw in the throw microwave. microwave. The one time, though, it said on the thing, microwave, throw in microwave, set for five minutes, but listen for popping. I just saw the five minutes part. I, lo- I threw it in, and my house was filled with popcorn smelling smoke. Oh. <laughs> the first time I ever tried to cook popcorn by myself. How old were you at this point? Probably 14 or 15. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you were younger, I'd probably give you a little bit of a pass. But I'm like, but then again, there were so many people and, and when I was away at college that 
burnt popcorn and end up requiring the fire department to come to the dorms everything. Well, I do remember the smoke was kind of yellowy from the butter, actually. Oh, no. There was like a yellowy haze to it. <laughs> you look like it was a mustard gas or oh, anything. <laughs> butter gas. But yeah, he keeps asking. She tells him about how she's watching a scary movie. Yeah, she's going like, then she... What's your favorite scary um, And movie? she says Halloween because the white guy in the white mask talks to babysitters. And then she's like, and he asks, like, what do you think mine is? Like, oh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Is that the guy with, with knives on his fingers? Yeah, Freddy Krueger. Yeah, Freddy. I like that one. He's scary. And Drew Barrymore retorts, saying, yeah, the first one was good, but the rest suck. <laughs> hey, three was great, and Wes Craven was a part of that. Yeah. And so was New Nightmare. So. Yeah, like, those are the three. Like, if you only need to watch three of the, the Nightmare on Elm Street series, I say one, three, and seven. But um, I say watch all of them, especially two. I think two is a little underrated. I think two is a little underrated, yeah. But um, every time she hangs up on him, he calls back, and things, they start to get a little, they start to escalate. And you can see step by step she's getting more agitated. And then he asks her, what's her name? And he says, why do you want to know my name? And he retorts saying, because I want to know where I'm lo- who I'm looking at. And that's when she knows something's wrong. Yeah, because her house, which nice house, like a nice two-story house on a farm, it's giant windows. windows. Giant windows, a big sliding glass back door. Yeah. A lot of big open area. And the cool thing about this sequence is that a lot of this was shot on the steady cam and it's literally like allowing Drew Barrymore to just like move throughout the space. So there's a lot of energy coming from there. But also as the audience, you know the geography, where the kitchen is, where's the front door, where's the back door, where's the patio in the back and everything. And how these and she hangs up after this comment and he keeps calling back like She's getting more upset. She's even starting to like wipe a tear away from her eye. So finally she just you know, he says the last one, don't hang up on me. And when he calls back you know, she says, uh, listen, asshole. Up on she says, listen, asshole. And that's when he gets it. He's like, no, listen, you little bitch. If you hang up on me again, I'll get you like a fish. Understand? And that's, yeah. Is that what a do joke? You want? I want to play a game. And, and then like, uh, eight she, years later, uh, no, yeah, eight years later, like Jigsaw would make that his catchphrase as well. Yeah. So she starts getting more upset. At the threats and says, I have my boyfriend over here and he'll kick your ass. His name wouldn't be Steve, would it? Don't do you know. Turn on the patio lights. Doom. Just do it. And we find out that it was actually is... Emperor Palpatine because he said, do it. <laughs> Unlimited power! That's she, how... t- she turns on the back lights and there's her boyfriend, bloodied and beaten, duct taped to a chair. Right. Mouth shut. And he's threatening to kill them if she doesn't play a little game. And it's pretty much playing movie trivia, especially horror trivia. And she's in hysterics at this point, trying to maintain calm, hiding behind her TV. And it's something that's it's kind of lost on us now. It's like the the blank blue screen. Yep. On the CRTV. Well, I, fortunately for for me, my current LCD that I have, my my HD TV. Uh, when it's got no signal, it's a blue screen that just says no signal. So I kind of still have that True. to an extent. Um, so she turns off the patio lights, sits there, and he starts asking her the movie trivia. You know, na- the first one is name the killer in Halloween. She gets it right. But that was just conveniently the practice question. Yeah, just a warm-up and everything. And then he asks the question, name the killer in Friday the 13th, which he proclaims that it's Jason, Jason. And he says, nope, you're afraid not. You're wrong. I'm afraid that's the wrong answer. No, it's not. I, I've seen the movie 20 goddamn times. And you should know Mrs. Voorhees was the original killer. Jason didn't show up, show up till the, the sequels. And and that was the, she lost that round. So. Yeah, I mean, this is like, imagine bar trivia was this intense. Oh, where your friend dies? Yeah, like, oh. So she t- he tells her that, you know, like, she gets another chance, but poor Steve, I'm afraid he's out.
out. And then we just hear the most stock cutting, gutting yeah. sound in the world. A here. lot of the sound effects in this movie really did sound like they were very stock. Like, this yeah. movie wasn't under-budgeted. Like, they could have... Sprung they could have hired a fucking Foley artist instead of going into the old library. Right. And then she turns on the, the patio light and she finds that... Steve they, has been disemboweled. And this is... Tired exhibit, stomach cut open, intestines out. Exhibit A of the first thing that needed to be cut <laughs> uh, for the MPAA. Was originally Steve's intestines would be like pretty much in his lap and would fall out onto the ground. Yeah. They were, it was trimmed to where they were already had fallen completely out and were just hanging there. Right. Now, this was actually a really cool effect that K&B did mm-hmm. where the back of the chair was taken off and the actor playing Steve was sticking his body up through the back of the chair, kneeling behind it. Uh-huh. And they put like dummy legs and a dummy stomach in front of it. Oh, and that's okay. how they did that. They had the intestines hanging there. That's probably real, uh, probably a lot easier to reset and uh, rather than have to do a whole new shirt for him and everything. Oh, yeah. But- that's that's really clever. That's a right neat there. effect, isn't it? I never knew that. Now you're going to try it, aren't you? Uh, well, I'm going to try it on you. For real, though. Yes, exactly. Just because you need a reference point. Exactly. But then I won't be alive to, to do the practice one. I, I will do it after we've completed this podcast. Oh, cool. So this is the end of the uh, What's Your Favorite Scary Movie podcast. Exactly. Uh, it's been a fun ride, but unfortunately, we're go- this is going to have to be cut short. Oh! And so uh, Casey is kind of uh, traumatized by this, but they... Killer is laughing to himself, but says, hey, we're not finished yet. And says, he asks her a final question. What door am I at? There's two entrances to this house, the front door, the patio door. Get this right, you'll be left alone. And he gives her about three seconds to think about it before, boom, a fucking lawn chair comes flying through the sliding glass door at the back. And since we we watched it with you, like, in here at your house with the surround sound and everything, that's so late. It literally, like, shakes the room and everything. Casey goes running into the kitchen, grabbing a bush knife to defend herself. Her popcorn is smoking by this point. Yeah. And that's how I love how to level the intensity of the scene is. The further as how intense the scene goes, we keep coming back to the popcorn, getting bigger and bigger as attention until it's engulfed in flames. Yep. And as she kind of like ducks behind areas and tries to sneak her way out, she'll turn her head down the hall and see this figure in like al- almost this giant black cloakish thing that he's wearing just zoom by, just run by. So we got we got a runner. We don't got a walker. No. As our killer, we got a runner. She actually manages to sneak outside, mm-hmm. and as she's walking around the house trying to stay out of sight, sees her parents are coming home. Yeah. The car's pulling up. She makes the stupid move of sticking her head up. Look through her look window the house. after she's past her boyfriend, and what does she see? Ghost face. Who literally turns back and whips it, and like, that still breaks, gets me. Breaks through the window, grabs her, but she manages to hit him. She's still got the phone in her hand, and she runs away. She runs around the house, but she's sprinting sprinting at full blast, gets kind of tired as she sees her parents pulling up, where he manages to jump out and grab a hold of her. The The chase begins. In slow motion. In right, slow motion. But he catches up and stabs her, like, right in the shoulder. And she falls to the ground, and she's trying to hold her blood into her. She's trying to, like, hold pressure on it, but in the ghost face gets down, and he looks like... At first, I thought, like, he had punctured her throat or everything with his thumbs, like, but I think he just... When he grabbed her neck so hard, he like punctured, like he hurt her windpipe. He was just like, yeah, you like crushed her windpipe. Because and she- then he changed paramedic clothes with her and managed to get away while she was taken by Jamie Lee Curtis in a coroner van, thinking that that's really the killer. And she survived getting flown through a windshield, uh, getting hit by said van, tumbling down a large hill, having said van land on her, and was still. Fairly conscious, you know, well well enough to reach out, but she couldn't speak. You know, she didn't take the mask off like any sane person would do, but reached out, 
But then J.B. Lee Curtis chopped her head off, and that was the end of Casey Becker. Now I'm done. Because that's plausible. That's extremely plausible. We're having a good time and everything. I know. Why'd I have to ruin it with Halloween Resurrection? Yeah. You don't get it? You don't get it? Your shit ain't working up there? No, my shit ain't working up there because I saw Halloween Resurrection. (laughs) So Casey uh, knees a dude uh, that goes just in the nuts. Hits him with the phone. No, she hits him with that, and then, like, no, because, like, um... She like takes the mask. Well, no, because I'm thinking about that's it. later. Yeah, she needs it enough, and that's when it sends it back. And she crawls away to her parents. And everything, but she can't talk. Her parents enter the house. They see that the house is in disarray. There's smoke everywhere. The fucking patio door has been shattered. They're frantically looking for her. Ghostface gets back to her, starts choking her. Mm-hmm. Well, he, he stabs her. What is he stabs her once? No, he pushes her down onto like this. We just watched this, so we're. He pushes her down back onto like the patio in front of the uh, front of the house, and she reaches and takes off the mask, and he's, she recognizes yep. him. He's about to stab her. He's we got don't the knife see held him. up. She reaches up, grabs the mask, and we can assume because the camera pans away, we can assume she pulls the mask off, and as she's like trying to stay conscious. You see, like her eyes like open a little wider than they were, as if she recognized who it was, and you see the knife come down. And then we just see it from the parents' point of view, just searching the house looking for her. The mother puts out the uh, uh, popcorn in the sink. Which is on fire now. Yeah, and the father goes upstairs, and then she calls the, the mother calls the police, but the, it, the phone is still in Casey's hand. The it's phone still is still on, on. So she hears her daughter The sound daughter of her daughter dying. being killed. And, being, and then Ghostface starts dragging her body away. She's stabbed all over. Just, and the mother's listening, and she's like, I found Casey. She's right here. And they're both like listening on the receiver. It's like, oh, my God, I'm here. And they hear like, hey! And then cut off the phone. Yep, the phone cuts off, and you hear that. So the father says, "Drive down the street to the Mackenzies." Reference to first reference to Halloween. Apparently, this was also in Haddonfield, Illinois, was somehow also in California. Somehow, it truly was because South Pass. Yeah, no, South Pass was that close to the filming of this. No, it's a couple hundred miles away south of there. Yeah. So Casey's mother goes out the door, immediately stops her tracks, and screams in horror. The father follows behind, and he has this look of shock on his face. At the end of the driveway where there's a big tree, Casey's disemboweled body is hanging from it. Her fucking guts are on the floor. She's she's dead. Yeah, and this is where, like, it was like they had this big, long push in, into her where if you look at the behind-the-scenes footage and everything, it was a lot more graphic. And this is another thing that the MPAA said, had to cut down on. So that's why the footage is sped up. There's frames cut out of it. I think and- the fast... The fast speed up almost makes it kind of creepy because it's like, for me, seeing this, this is like the first, like, disembowel kill in a movie I'd ever saw. Like, yeah. the first two. And to have that, like, fast zoom, mm. you know, like like in a horror movie, whenever you have, like, a fast zoom into something. Yeah. Like in The, in the, the Shining, when mm. Wendy's looking for Danny and Jack, and there's the guy in the bear costume and the fucking... And, um, yeah, and the, the guy, they look at her, and then the fast zoom, and you're like, your brain almost doesn't know what to think, and now you're thrust immediately into it. Yeah. That, I had that kind of feeling. I feel like it worked better this way, actually. Right. I, I think, like, unintentionally made it more um, intense for Oh, my God, it did. And you, like, you as an audience member, was, like, left breathless in mode because Drew Barrymore, the biggest star in this movie... Is gone. Like, at least, like, within Psycho... Like Janet Lee had a little more time. She, she at least like made it like 35 minutes, point. 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah, something like that. The first act. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're just like, whoa, okay. And then first like 10 minutes. Gone. Gone. 
And that was the whole scene that was quickly assembled by Patrick Lussier that convinced Bob Weinstein that they were onto something good. Yeah, and it actually convinced been... Bob to say, you know what, let me leave this alone. They got it. They know what they're doing. And it was the first thing they shot over the course of like five nights. And truthfully, it has that very much like when a stranger calls opening feel where this could be like a mini movie in and of itself. And that's the thing I've said before about when a stranger calls, like you could probably find on YouTube, like that's that set piece. Like just watch that. The rest of the movie is kind of a bore to me and everything. You just watch that, and it's like a great short film onto itself. Yeah, this scene works as a great short film onto itself. Now, do you think the movie peaks too early with this? Because um, I've seen criticism like the movie, like this and Scream 2 specifically, they peak too early with the intensity. Like, how do you top that throughout the rest of the movie? I don't know. Because we don't really get anything along the same lines of gore at all in the rest of the rest of the movie. I mean, no. the rest of what we get is a, a lot of just bloodiness. And, yeah. I mean, garage door head crushings, mm-hmm. but they're cut so quick and there's nothing really incredibly graphic about it. When you said, like, garage door head crushing, I just thought of the Megadeth song, uh, Head Crusher. Death by the Head Crusher. Head Crusher. Anyway. I don't know. I mean... I guess you could have ended it right there, but at the same time, what you're introduced to next is really what draws you in. Like, the very next scene, we're introduced to Sidney Prescott, the main character. Played by Niff Campbell. She's at home on her computer. I don't know what she's doing because it was the days of dial-up in America Online. Maybe she was writing a paper. Who knows? There wasn't a hell of a lot to do. Maybe she was watching. Maybe she was waiting for her porn page to load like you used to back then. Uh, But, like, if you're you're waiting to get off that way, don't worry because her boyfriend comes through the window. Try to get off. Yep. She hears a noise, goes over to her window. And to the window! To the window! To the wall. And almost mimicking Nightmare on Elm Street when Johnny Depp came through Nan- Nancy's, Nancy's window. window. Um, Sydney, you know, screams before she recognizes it was him. And she's like, what are you doing here? You know, she's in her, like a little nighty. Yeah. And the, if my, if my dad sees you, he's going to kill you. And her dad knocks on the door. So he quickly hides. And her dad goes to open the door. But the way her door, the way her room is laid out, she's got a closet like right next to where the door is. It's like a right angle from the yeah. entrance to her room. The closet door opens out, and her bedroom door can pretty much get stuck on it. Yeah. Just bam right into it. It's a little setup for later, as we yep. see. So there's her father saying, I heard a scream. No, you didn't. Look around. Everything's okay. So he reminds her that he's going away. Uh, her father is, you know, business trip man, always mm-hmm. away. And just reminds her of everything to do. So... You can see she's got a good relationship with the father and mother. We don't see just yet. No. More on that later. So when the father leaves, you know, Billy comes out from behind the bed with a little doll saying, Ooh, Ooh, close call. call. So he starts to explain why he's there. He was watching The Exorcist on TV. And he thought about them as a couple, which yeah. like, red flag number one, that you're watching The Exorcist and you think about your significant other. Yeah, exactly. Unless she loves that movie too. You yeah, know? And like, unless you like you guys are horror fans and love it, then maybe... But as Sydney will say later, she's not a fan of horror movies, but he's trying to explain how... It was what, edited for television. Edited for television and how their relationship, you know, it's like many relationships, starts out hot and heavy. Everything's, oh, we were solidar on our way to an NC-17, but now we're kind of like made for television. And so, yeah, and like what we find out, we don't know reason why she's become very, I guess, sexually timid. We, we we get a little more information going forward, and but they he says like I don't like when I approach anything, but like, maybe we could just do top of the clothes kind of stuff, and she agrees. And he basically start... he basically just came over to beg for sex. Yeah, <laughs> not a cool move, dude. No, so they start to make out a little, but he starts to get a little touchy feely, and she cuts him off, and yeah. he 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 obliges. As yeah, you should. 
Yes. Very good. She says no. You stop no, there. No, he stops. But on the way out, she does ask him if he wants to settle for a PG-13 relationship where she flashes him. Yeah. And, and they have like, a nice little chuckle. And he's like, you're such a tease that he just backs, he, he cool backs his way out of the window and everything. So next day at school at uh, Woodsboro High School. This and, takes place in the fictional town of Woodsboro. California, I guess. And this is probably my favorite shot in the whole movie because it opens up with a crane shot looking at the uh, high school. It booms down, so we see all the uh, kids going in, but also all the news vans. We see news vans, police cars, officers with barricades, all kinds of shit going on. But the really cool thing is is this is not a camera on a crane. It's a steady cam operator on a crane, and the guy steps off the crane and walks with Nev Campbell as she walks into the scene, and then she just examines it, and then we go from what she she sees something off the camera, and we literally pan, and we push in into the back of a, a jacket that says Top Story, and a person reporting the news is... Uh, Gail Weathers, Gail Courtney, Weathers Cox. For Courtney Cox. And this catches Sydney's attention, for reason more on that later, yeah. but this one reporter specifically catches Sydney's attention. In her green highlighter uh Yes, she's suits. wearing like the fucking, yeah, a, like a green highlight marker suit. A lot of neon, another one's wearing, wearing a neon orange. That's actually uh, Linda Blair. Linda, Linda Blair, Blair has a cameo as another reporter. Right. Very brief, but she comes back a little later and has a few lines. But this is when... Sydney's uh, very confused looking around. And uh, this is when we have uh, Tatum, played by Rose McGowan, come in and explain that... that uh, Casey and Steve were murdered last night. Right. And it's, oh, my God. You have your standard. I can't believe it. I sit next door in class. Oh, you used to. <gasps> Not anymore. Yeah, explains how awful it was and saying how bad it was and how it's the worst thing since... She kind of cuts herself off a little bit there. And just says, well, it's bad. And she walks away and she she cringes at, like, oh, God, I almost said something really inappropriate. Like this, so like, there's a little more to Sydney than we think. Like, why would she cut herself off? So while sitting in class, Sydney looks at the empty chair where Casey used to sit. And then she's called into the office, the principal's office, to talk to the police. They're interviewing all the students. And the principal played by Henry Winkler, a.k.a. the Fonz. Hey! Hey! And this is where we're also introduced to... Uh, the sheriff and to Dewey. Yes. And we just have a quick question. It's like, before she walks in, like, they, they ask her, all right, who's next? Is look at their clipboards. Like, uh, Sydney Prescott. Uh, Prescott. Sydney Prescott. She's the, the daughter, daughter of dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. And Sydney comes in, and then we say, oh, we're just going to ask a few questions and everything. And Henry Winkler, like, puts her hand, his hands on, like, Sydney's chin really quick. Like, we're going to make this real Boundaries. easy. Yeah. And even the sheriff, I love that it cuts that shot of the sheriff. It's like, his eyes, like, kind of twitch that, just recognizing, that's a little yeah. inappropriate it's there, sir. So after their little questioning, we catch up with, with Sydney, Tatum, uh, Billy, and that's when we're introduced to Randy and Stu, mm-hmm. uh, Tatum's boyfriend, Stu, Matthew Lillard, Randy, Jamie Kennedy, Kennedy, and they're all they're all talking about it. And they're all talking about it in a pretty sick, desensitized way that really was kind of a staple of Generation X. Yeah, and this is where I think a lot of the, I guess we see the Santa Rosa School having issues of the the kids being so cavalier, yeah, about with how the, 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 the death of their fellow students. And I, I mean, at that, you know, when you're young, you are like very desensitized and detached to things. You almost have this feeling of immortality because you're right. a kid. Unless you like had to face something like that as as a child, you don't understand it yet. And really. you think you being in school, you're safe. Yeah, you think being in school, you're in a safe. And this was pre Columbine, right? So. School was still pretty safe back then. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there was a, a shooting in an IHOP no more than two miles west on Portion Road. There was a shooting there. And yeah, I heard my about state, that. And North, my high school, was had to be shut down yeah. or locked, put on lockdown because of it. Yep. And last night, I was at the – down in Patchogue at, at the bars, and, like, there were rumors there was going to be either shooting either there or Quorum. And so at a concert at the Stereo Garden, which used to be in the Emporium, 
They canceled the concert, and there was, like, cop cars patrolling the streets the entire time. And once I heard about this, our friend Nikki had told me this when I got to Hoptron. I, like, I'm waiting to meet up with my sister, and I'm wondering, should I just bag it for the rest of the night or anything? But I realized if I leave now, anybody, like, even if this was a hoax or anything, I'm giving them them power and everything, and saying like I'm like hiding from it and everything. So like, no, I'm gonna stay out. I don't think I think everything's gonna be fine. And everything, luckily, everything was. But yeah, that that kind of reality that like going into a public space and like something like uh, something a violent action happening, everything like is wasn't as ubiquitous as it was in the '90s. Mm-hmm. And but I also think you walk out of your house, you have a fifty-fifty chance of coming back alive and everything. But you stay even... in your house, you get a fifty-fifty chance sometimes. Oh, true. You never know what'll happen. And so with these characters here, they've seen like they ask you if you like to hunt. Yeah, I did, and they only asked that to the the fellows and not the women. And even Tatum questions like they didn't ask me if I was gonna if I like to hunt. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, because a, a woman couldn't do that. Yeah, it gets a little odd, sexist like that. Sexist, but also. You know, crazy. They start setting up maybe potential motives of these characters. Apparently, Stu used to date Casey and was dumped Much by her. Much the chagrin of uh, Tatum, Tatum right there, and was was dumped by her too. Yeah. When Randy reminds her, and he asks, and he asks her so ever so tactfully, "Hey, did you put her liver in the mailbox?" Did right, her spleen in the mailbox. Jerry loses her pressure right there. Pancreas. And I, I love that. There's this moment here when. Sydney asks, like, how do you gut somebody? And everybody kind of stops. And there's this beat here. Like, she's very, like, somber about it, too. And then the, the piano comes in. I love that moment here. There are a few moments in here that I think are kind of lacking sometimes in the sequels. But, like, there's a moment here and a scene, uh, next scene coming up where we just like, have to stop and just breathe for a second before we go any further. And But it ends with, like, they're going to leave and the, the school's over. And Sue, like, the buttons of the scene is like, you better live her alone. Get live her alone. <laughs> so the scene ends. We realize that all these fucking kids are quacked out of their minds. It could yeah, be a, it could be fucking anybody. Yeah, not even a. It could be someone in the town. It could be a kid. It could be who? Who the hell knows? Right. So Sydney goes home. She's on the phone with Tatum. You know, talking about all the news and everything being crazy and how she's going to be staying with Tatum oh, after the, that night. Yeah, because while her, while her father's out of town, and everything. Yep. And how she pick her players. So Sydney, after getting off the call, you know, turns on the TV and there's nothing on but reports about it. Right. She goes from channel to channel. Stopping on Gail Weathers. Stopping on on the channel with the reporter that she saw at, at uh, school that she was fixated on, Gail Weathers, Courtney Cox. And she's describing this as this brutal murder, but not the first one to take place here. Just one year ago, Maureen Prescott. Was found raped and was murdered. Found raped and murdered. Sydney's mother apparently was murdered just just a year prior. Like this is coming up on the first anniversary of it. Yeah. And Gail seemed to know a lot about it, and Sydney seemed a little bit disgusted at what she was looking at, so she turned it right off. So a little more to that. So she goes, lays down on the couch, looks at a picture of her and her mother, and we really start to see like, oh, now we kind of get what's yeah. up with this girl. Why things ain't right? And then we have she these fall- beautiful. Like, and she falls asleep, but we have like this kind of little brief like. Transitional shots is like watching the sunset, magic hour here in, in North, the hills of Northern California. And it is gorgeous. That's the one thing about this movie. It is a gorgeous looking movie. It took place in a lot of like, I don't want to say rural land, but a lot of like just wine op- country open land. Of. Yep. And it's a curious thing that this movie was shot widescreen. Mm-hmm. And so there is a kind of grand feeling to it. And something that Craven really didn't do that much up until this point. A lot of his movies were in 185 rather than 235. And it's a staple that going forward that is 
specifically shot anamorphic because we'll he we'll see lens flares throughout and like this is just like the company the, the cameras they use like was movie cam and everything else is going was panavision and it is a certain look to it and the fact that he'd used a lot of dollies he used a lot of steady cam so there's a lot of energy to this to this movie and it's not a lot of stagnant cameras and everything. So I think it's a, another thing that makes it kind of wholly unique uh, rather than uh, you think a lot of low budget horror movies like, ah, it's a lot of stuff on lockdown tripods and everything. And it seems kind of lackadaisical in its pace. However, this works really well, especially since we cut to 90 minutes later, sun has gone down and city's woken up by a phone call. Yep. Tatum's calling. I guess she had some sort of practice she was doing. She's in some group dance practice. I don't know, but it ran late. Talk cheerleading. Of, cheerleading practice. Okay. So she's, Gonna rent a movie, mm-hmm. you know, Tom Cruise and all the right moves, because apparently if you pause it just right, you can see his penis. Which I think that's what's been disproved since. Probably, but it's just, it, it's more, you know, ref- Hollywood references, yeah. more movie references. I mean, it, it's a thing where, like, when used right, that's cool, mm-hmm. but unlike a lot of the parody movies you see today, like, pop culture and movie references are the jokes. Yeah, rather than, like, using to service a scene, like, they are yeah. just simply the jokes. Yep. So, so and, you, and you really get the feeling that all these kids are just big movie buffs. Yeah. And, and that, as a kid who's, who's, like, loving movies even at yeah. that young age, I, I immediately identified with them. And that helps throw off the identity of the killer because the killer was a movie buff. So, fuck, everyone's a movie buff. Right. So, shanks up the phone with Tatum, and a few seconds later, the phone rings again. Tatum, get just get in the damn car and, hello, hello Sydney. Uh-oh, it's a, fami- it's a familiar voice calling her. And she doesn't. She thinks it's Randy playing a joke on her and everything. Because he says, it's a scary night, kind of like a scary movie. Oh, Randy, I like that thing you do with your voice. What's your favorite scary movie? Yeah. And we get some nice meta moment. Yeah, it's like they're all the same. It's all about this big breast girl who's running up the stairs. Should be going out the front door. It's insulting. Yeah, like this is this is where the lighthearted moment, one of the where some of the lighthearted moments of Scream come in, where it just pokes fun at, you know, all the horror cliches and tropes. Right. And it's like, I, like it's like it would be fine, but I'm not Randy. Then, like, who are you? Like, the question isn't who am I. The question is where, where am I? Well, then where are you? Your front porch. Like, she's, try- she's trying to call his bluff, but at the same time, she's a bit curious. Like, she doesn't believe this. Right, and I love it earlier on when she's getting ready before Tatum gets out there. Like, she opens up the closet door near the front. And, and there's, like, a little music sting. Boom, and this nothing comes in. out of there. Yeah. And then she walks past it. She heads towards the front door, and she calls the bluff, like, unlocking the door and going out on the porch. Yeah. So she goes out on the porch and says, oh, I don't see you. And... She decides to call this bluff and say, what am I doing? So she sticks her finger up her nose. And just like, what am I doing? Uh, what am hello? I doing? Hello. <laughs> Unlike, but not like Olivia Hussey in Black Christmas. No. So she just tells him, very funny, Randy. Tell Tatum, you know, to get her ass over here now. And, and if you hang up on me again, you'll die just like your you mother. hang up on me again, you'll die just like your mother. Shit-a-doom. Do you want to die tonight, Sydney? Your mother, sir. And that's one of my favorite edits in the whole movie. Did. Is like it goes from like this medium shot of her to an extreme close up. Like when cut. It literally like cuts cut. to it. It hard cuts it with the music stabbing. L- like Kathy's curse. Your mother's a bitch. Cut. <laughs> the only difference would be if she was sitting down, then it cut to her standing, standing up. up randomly. And then she tells, she says, "Fuck you, cretin," and she runs back her house, locks herself yeah, he, in. He touched the nerve on that one. Yeah. So she locks herself in. Now the camera is still outside. Looking, looking through the through window of the door, and she's in right the foreground. But in the background is the closet that the closet open. bursts open. The killer was in there the whole time. You know, it attacks her. They have a little scuffle. He manages to headbutt her and subdue her, but she manages to kick him and get away. Uh, then she proceeds to not follow her own 
advice. She tries to go out the front door, but it's locked. It's still locked. Yeah, the uh, chain lock lock is still there. So he stabs at the door, and she goes running up up the stairs, which she should be going for another door. door. And she ends up getting to her room, and she's able to barricade the door with her closet door. Yep, the whole closet door is set up. And... She tries to pick up her her own uh, her desk phone that she has in the room, but it, it's just it's off the hook. Yep, the the uh, the, uh, the cordless that she was using is still downstairs, active. Yeah, it's still, downstairs is still active. And so she try and then she calls the police from her computer at this point. Yeah, on the, on her computer, apparently she had some kind of program for uh, I don't know if she, maybe she was going to like that was something she was looking into as a college major, but apparently there's a computer program where through your dial up line. Deaf people can like phone the police through the keyboard, right? And it even says like for for the program says like for hearing impaired or for for nine one one for deaf deaf people. And the nine one one operator says, "What is your emergency?" But she notices the noise is stopped. Mm-hmm. The killer left right at that moment. Billy comes through her window, scaring the shit out of her. Right, and she goes and she embraces him because she's like, "The killer's in the house. He's in the house." And she's like, "It's okay. It's okay." And at that point. His cell phone drops out of his pants. Now, at this point, teenagers did not have cell phones. Yeah. I'm sorry. Like, my stepfather had a cell phone because he was, you know, trying to start up his own business. Right. And it wasn't like a smaller one like that. It was a, it, it wasn't the full on bulky, um, murder weapon 80s phone. No. Where you could beat someone to death with. It was like a smaller, the, you had to pull out the little antenna, flip and the mouthpiece. The flip phone and everything. But it was bulkier. You couldn't just keep it in your pocket like that. It no. wasn't like that Nokia, the Nokia phone. That was like two years away. Still. Right. I mean, I even love, I think one of my favorite cell phone gags in the 90s is in Hook, where Ron Williams and his friend have like a holster on their, uh, uh, belt and they, they, Duel each other, see who can answer the phone quicker and everything. Mm. And and at this point, like I know this is something that's kind of lost, I guess, on modern audiences watching this for the first time now. Like because everybody's got a cell phone, everybody has a smartphone. Yeah. And so like this not being like oh a plot point here of him having a cell phone, so she thinks he's the killer and she runs away. But out, it's, it's out also the- it's also noticeable he's wearing black jeans and black boots, which is what the killer wears underneath his cloak. Underneath his cloak. Like, the killer's costume, like, we didn't really go into it very deep yet. No. Like, we described the mask, but the actual costume we have is is very Grim Reaper-esque. Yes. It's this big, like, bulky, gownish thing. Because the reason why is because there's multiple people going to have to wear it of, in different kind of body types and everything. So yes. you need to conceal the entire identity of the person from head to toe. It's got these long, baggy, like, wizard robe sleeves. Right. You know? But it's got glit. It's got it's kind of like a little glitter on it. It's got a glitterish thing it, to it. Kind of shiny. It, it, it just has a sheen that catches the light a certain way when you uh, light it properly. And it has a hood. Now, I, I own a full screen costume, which we use to shoot that little teaser for right. this podcast. The hood has like a like foam in it to keep mm-hmm. the shape of the hood. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it's a very impractical costume. Like his full body's covered. He's wearing black gloves. You know, I think it's kind of those big sleeves and the big gownish part to it is yeah. very impractical because you get that shit stuck in the door, you could step on it, trip over it. Which we do see throughout the entire series how clumsy the, the yeah. Ghostface killer is. If you look at a lot of horror killers, their costumes are, their outfits are more functional. Like the mask is the primary part. Right. But everything else they wear, like Michael Myers, he just wears a regular pair of, set of gas station coveralls. Right. You know? And you think My Blade Valentine, it's just, it's just a minor with yeah. a minor helmet and everything. Freddy Krueger, he's just wearing pants, shoes, and a striped sweater. Striped sweater. And a hat, you know. Yeah. Jason, just whatever the fuck it is. like a. But the key thing being the hockey mask. Yeah. The key thing was always usually the mask or the face. Here, mm. yes, we do have a distinctive mask and face, but we also have a distinctive costume entirely. Right. And so Sydney gets freaked out and runs throughout her house, backs the front door, and she rips open, and she sees the screen mask. Or oh, the it's right mask. there. 
and but it pulls back. It's this dude who's scared at the same time. And he screams yep. back at her. The police have arrived from her nine one one typing, <laughs> which I, I even pointed out when we were before we, we were watching it before recording. Like the joke in scary movie. Where they, she types out like, like white girl in danger, and the entire precinct descends upon yeah. Sydney's house and everything. We'll talk about scary movie too in a little bit. But, yeah, but Billy's arrested. He's professing his innocence. Sydney's there. Tatum finally shows up. You know, mad at herself that she was late. Yeah. Uh, she talks to Dewey. We find out Dewey is her brother, mm-hmm. Officer Dewey. And that Sydney's staying with them, and and Tatum really treats Dewey like shit. <laughs> she does to him like as I. I He's the older brother, but she treats him like he's the fucking redheaded stepchild. I'm sorry. Thanks. <laughs> you're not a ste- you're not anyone's stepchild. No, I, I look too much like my father to be uh, to be a stepchild. Um, but yeah, no, I, I get the sentiment there. And she like he he tries to project this like semblance of authority that Millie is undercut whenever she deals with him, mm-hmm. especially in front of his boss. At the same as the cop car pulls away, Gail Weathers pulls up. You know, the first reporter hot on the scene. Yep. Uh, she tries to get an interview with Sydney, but unfortunately, Dewey drives away with Sydney. Tatum follows behind in her car. Gail's trying to get you know, anybody word. to tell her anything. Gail's trying to get word out of Tatum, and Tatum is basically telling her to fuck off. You yeah, know? you're a real pain in the ass. Leave Sydney alone. Yeah, like, okay, so there's this a real history here between Gail and Sydney. Right. Which we don't know yet. So they go back to the police station. Billy's interviewed. But even before that, I love the buttons of the scene here. Is oh, that, yeah. The end of the scene. Because, like, when she gets, when Gail jumps out of the news van, Kenny, her cameraman's right behind her, and she's like, "Jesus, the camera, hurry!" And he's like, "My name isn't Jesus. Jesus." There's some clever ADR going on. In this and movie then when too. she, when he finally gets there with the camera and microphone in hand, ready, like, "Where'd you go?" And Gail kind of pulls him to the side, saying, "Kenny, I know you're about like 50 pounds overweight, but when I say hurry, please interpret it as a move, you fat tub of lard ass." Now! And she rips the hand microphone out of his hand and walks away. And it's I'd, like, I'd quit at that moment. You just like, just drop the $60,000 camera like, I'm done. I could do better. Yeah, like, I, there's so many other people like, uh, like that. Now, I, I do have friends in the news industry and work for a TV station and some on the scenes reporters can be really, like, have a lot of cults of personality like that. It's really, uh, unsettling to deal with. Yeah, so. We're at the, we got to the police station. Police station, Billy's being interviewed. He's there with his father. Uh, you know, they talked about everything, and the sheriff asks him, What are you doing with the cellular telephone, son? Oh, all the kids have it. Like, well, I kind of don't. Not I yet. I was, I was just about entering high school at that point. And, when did you, know, you get your first cell phone? Oh, God, I think I was like 21. Really? Yeah. It was like right before I turned 21. It was a prepaid. So yeah. I had to always refill minutes on it. Yep. That was mine. I got that in senior high school almost 10 years ago now. It was... Uh, 2005 was when I got my first cell phone. 2000, I think... Eight, I think, was when I got it, and yeah, prepaid and uh, everything that like I and I still have it, really. Yeah, and if you sent text messages, like you took like ten cents of of it off, so like I had to refill it often because I would text a lot, and I still do. But and he asked Billy, you know, what were you doing? And he's like, I was, uh, I was bored. You know, he asks like Sydney said you snuck into her room last night. Much and her surprises his father with that question. His father didn't know that he actually went out. Yeah. So it's like, Ooh, that oh, boy, look good. Billy... Where were you, sir? Where were you last night, sir? And, like, I got bored and decided to go for a ride. Did you stop by Casey Becker's house like, on the way? Like, no, I didn't. Which, shouldn't he, shouldn't his lawyer be there? I guess because he's a minor, he's got to be represented by his parent. Right. Because his parent is there. I guess the parent could have brought a father. Uh, I, could, a parent could have brought a father. <laughs> I'm sure. Brought his grandfather in there. Yes. Um, so three generations of Loomis's. Fuck. And two things. A, <laughs> a, 
That, that, Dewey does kind of fuck if up If this the were brand. a video podcast, you would caption all these, too. Oh, of course. I, I wouldn't have any problem with that because it's my own damn fault. Um, A, Dewey does screw up the Miranda rights that he reads to his say, Do you to... wish to give up your right to it? Do you wish to give up your right to it? Inter- like, no, dumbass. You if don't anything, say it like that. If anything, Billy could have gotten off just for that. Exactly. There is a constitutional amendment about that. If you yeah. screw up the fucking or don't give the Miranda rights, the person walks away. Right. And then... And then this scene, like we have his name being Loomis. A, this is a lineage name of Loomis, Loomis because yep. you think of Sam Loomis, the name of the boyfriend in Psycho, which influenced Halloween with Doctor Sam, Sam Loomis. Loomis. And this Billy Loomis, Loomis family is, is a reference to that. So we go from Psycho to Halloween to Scream. It's it's very appropriate in the uh, the real of the real generational hierarchy of horror, horror movies, you know. Of the slasher genre, truthfully, because Psycho was considered the first slasher. Yeah. Prototypical, you know, the first, or at least the first modern era horror movie. Right. The first one to take place in, like, modern times and not, you know, the 1800s. Right. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of the movies, up until Psycho and then Peeping Tom and, like, Night Living Day, it was very gothic-y horror It was movie. the Hammer era. Yeah. And then before, that was a universal horror. But anyway, back to Scream. Yep. Sydney's there. You know, ask her if he's okay. They're checking Billy's cell phone record. And she can't get a hold of their father. Yeah, they can't. she can't get a hold of her dad. And he hadn't checked into the hotel yet. Yep. So they take Billy out, and he's trying to talk to her, and she's just getting more and more upset. Mm-hmm. So Dewey comes in with uh, the actual, uh, an actual, like, package of the costume. This costume is sold retail. Yeah. This costume is sold in stores. It's called Father Death. Mm -hmm. You know, it has the Grim Reaper-ish look to it. Dewey says how they sell this in every five and dime in the state. There's There's no no way way to track the purchase. So that's kind of a creative aspect where your killer purchases an easy-to-find Halloween costume to throw people off. Rather than, like, while it still is unique in its design, however... It's very common. Which which they lean into that, especially in this movie, and going forward. Yeah. And, and like, you can even say it's a ridiculous uh, amounts going forward. But, and so they said, all right, let's just cut her loose, get her out of here. Tatum comes to pick her up, and, and while Dewey's, you know, trying to say, hold on, Tatum, Tatum just berates him in front of all his coworkers. Yeah, right in, like, the middle of the, the police station right he here. He said, well, what would mom say? When I wear this badge, you treat me like a man of the law? I'm sorry, Deputy Dewey Boy, we're ready to go now. Yeah. And the funniest like, the, totally ADR, and I hope it's ADR, or it, maybe it was there on the day where you hear somebody in the background off camera just go, like, whoa. They hear all the officers laughing in the background. <laughs> and he, he, he pulls Tatum to the side and like, whispers to her, like, the sheriff, like, that's my superior. Janitor's your superior. And you took quite a... Uh, I, I, I took offense to that. Yes. As a person who was a custodian, you took offense yes, to that. Yes, as a, as, a, as a high school custodian, I took fucking offense to that. Yeah. Hey, man, we, we do a lot for you people. Exactly. I don't see any. I, I've seen how fucking teachers clean. They, trust me, we're, do, we're doing a good job. Yeah, and so we cut to the outside of the police station where everybody and their mother, in terms of the news organizations, that they are trying to get their local scoop on. I think Gail arrives pretty much last last one to the party. Tries to force her way in, but and I, and I do love it. Like the big crane shot that introduces everything, and then we have the handheld shot of her trying to coming from the point of view of Kenny's camera as they try to enter the police station, and the police quickly shut them down, but. At the end of the previous scene, Gail mentions to Kenny, isn't there a back way? So they sneak around back. And that's when Dewey goes to get his truck, and Tatum and Sydney are just waiting outside the police station. And Gail approaches and starts trying to interview you and interview her. God damn it, interview you. Yeah, interview you. Hey, interview hey, you. Hey, yeah, go interview you. Uh, 
Hey, well, why don't you come over here? Why don't you come over here? <laughs> hey, you uh, shut up. Uh, you, you shut, shut hey, up. you shut up. Uh, both of you shut up uh, with the shut up. Boopity uh. <laughs> and, and this attracts more reporters right. who see this going on. And Sydney decides to give Gail a moment. Yeah. She tries to be a little bit nice. Just say, oh, how's, how's the book? Yeah. Like, oh, it's coming out soon. Oh, oh I'll look for it. I'll send, I'll send you a copy. And she almost... I don't know if Gail was being sarcastic or if she was trying to be friendly, thinking like, like, that. Oh, I was extending all the branch out to her. Or like, anything. because Sydney's tolerating me right now, this must mean she's okay with me. Yeah. But she wasn't. Sydney turns around and punches Gail right in the fucking face. Yeah. And, like, sends her to the ground. But if she would have gone hard, she would have hit the ground hard if it was for Kenny catching her while still holding the camera. So, and, like, points for him for doing and that. And another moment of clever ADR, you hear Kenny go, nice shot. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it when they're, before they get in the truck, Dewey says, like, Why'd you let the punch like that? <laughs> so we cut to Tatum's house. They're in their pajamas getting ready for bed. Mm -hmm. And Tatum's just like in awe of what Sid did. Like, I'll send bam. you a copy. Bam. Bitch went Go down. down. Send you a copy. Bam. Sid. Super, Super bitch. bitch. So cool. So cool. And I love the fact that like you have Tatum who's kind of like this character who's very like cold. Like you would say almost like icy to people and everything. But then she's got these like giant pajamas on and a cute it's a bunny, bunny doll and, and everything. So... And she she, is, she still has the inner child in here yep. and everything. They're but, talking about could it have been Billy? I don't know. He you know he was there the night before in yeah. your house and the cell phone. They, they're just going over the day's events, trying to wonder if it really is. But uh, Tatum's mother comes in, and mm -hmm. there's a there's a phone call for Sydney. Sydney picks up the phone. Hello, Sydney. Looks like you fingered the wrong guy again. Again. And when when. Tatum and Tatum's mother come out and they're listening to this conversation, but then Tatum's mother goes down the hall and starts banging on the door to get Dewey to come out, but he's not coming out. Sid so Sydney says, what do you want? It's like, you'll find out soon. I, I promise. promise. And hangs up the phone. And at that moment, that's when Dewey comes out of his room. <laughs> In his underwear and his shirt. And if you, if you saw the fucking scary movie, when uh, in the previous scene, the police station, when he talks about Mom telling you you to uh, <laughs> respect me. His mom also tells you that to keep sticking your dick in the vacuum cleaner. So Doofy, the parody of Dewey in that scene, comes out with the vacuum cleaner in his hand. <laughs> I told you not to disrupt me when I'm cleaning my, my room. room. And he's a huge boner. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like this old, like, 1950s. Like, Dr. Doofy. <laughs> he's, like, throwing it around. Just pulling on the fucking hose. I say special After pulling on his hose. <laughs> You'd be surprised how often I do say special officer Doofy reporting for Dewey. Special and officer I, Doofy. And I, I salute like that. But in the in Scream, <laughs> Dewey then picks up the phone and has this coy look on his face and goes, Hello. Hello. It, it's so fucking funny. And then we cut to the following morning and in the town of Woodsburn, the, the like, town in front of square. square. But this is another staple of the series that we hear... Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Red Right Hand, play throughout. That was in this scene. Yeah. Okay. It was something that played throughout here. And it's so weird that another the series of Peaky Blinders, this is their main theme. And that's another thing that was, premier, that was produced by the Weinsteins and everything. So Red the Right Hand is something that's been part of it. And it is so curious. Like, when I'm watching Peaky Blinders, it's like, it's turn the century, like, um, England, and all of a sudden you hear like this very modern song with people like on like horseback going through the city. Like this is it doesn't feel right, but 
after watching a few episodes, you get used to like, okay, this definitely seems like the right fit for the, the movie. And also, like, if anybody's watched the show, you got to say, like, Peaky fucking blinders. That's how you have to say it. <laughs> and that's when we, when Scream, the following morning at breakfast, we see news footage of Cotton Weary played by Lee Schreiber. Yes, they're uh, having breakfast and they're watching more of the news reports on all this, talking about how it's coming up to the anniversary of Maureen Prescott's death. And we get our cameo from Lee Schreiber. He plays Cotton Weary, the man convicted behind the mask current, the men he's back he's back the men behind the mask <laughs> he's the man convicted of the murder of Maureen Prescott uh it was and they say in the news it was Sydney's testimony that basically got him put away yeah so more of this backstory is really starting to unfold little by little so Dewey at breakfast says you know Billy's cell phone was clean. He didn't make those calls. We still can't get in touch with your dad. But we're going to find him soon, and yep. we're going to find who did this. Don't worry. Yep. So he dro- takes him to school, the dro- drops him off, and there's still reporters everywhere. Including the very pushy lawyer played by Linda Blair. Linda Blair comes out the mist. She sees her goes, why does it feel like to be brutally butchered? Oh, leave her alone. She just wants good education. Uh, and it's something that's a real nice piece of costume design, that her earrings are crosses. Yeah. So I, I, I love that. People want to know. They have a right to know. How does it feel? <laughs> She just want to get an education, says Dewey back to yep. her. So as they start walking, Sydney looks over. She tells Tatum, I'll be right back. Hold on. She walks over, and she walks over to Gail's van. Gail's still there. She's putting on makeup to hide the bruise on her face yeah. where she got punched. Gail tells her, you know, stop right there. She says, I just want to talk. And she makes Gail talk off the record, saying, you owe my mother. So, And then this is when this Gail is where we like, get the Gail's concedes backstory. that. Yep. And this is where we get the real – what happened is that, like, that Sydney had saw somebody leave the house wearing a coat that's covered in blood that presumably this person was just responsible for killing. It belonged to Cotton Weary. And Gail and Cotton say, like, that Cotton had sex with her earlier that night, left drunk, and somebody else came in and murdered her afterwards. Mm-hmm. And Gail was pretty much the one person who maintained – who investigating this maintains Cotton's innocence. And she wrote a book on it. Sydney believes to be all lies and bullshit, Mm -hmm. you know, stirring up this rumor that her mother's a fucking, you know, whore who sleeps with everyone. Right. And, you know, Gail's just like, I don't know why you're worried about this because you, you got what you wanted. Cotton Weary's on death row. They're They're going to gas him. They're going to give him the gas chamber, you know? So, but with all these murders starting again, you could tell Sydney's not even sure about this anymore. No, they like her, Resolve is being questioned at this point. Especially with what the killer said the previous night before. You figured the wrong guy again. Yeah. And so, I love it. It, A lot of the scene is just the two close-ups. It's just the reverse shots of the close-ups of them. And you see they're acting in full display. And then Sydney says, like, no, Cotton murdered my own mother. But you tell she's nervous behind it. There's not a lot of conviction behind it. Yeah. And then we we cut back to Gail and saying, you're not so sure anymore, are you? Yeah. And that's when Tatum comes in saying, and pulls her, pulls him away from me. Nice welt, sweetie. Come on, let's go. To which Gail turns back to Kenny and says, holy shit, an innocent man on death row. You know, <laughs> like, uh, she says to Kenny, uh, talking about how, you know, Sydney, Sydney isn't even sure. No one's sure. So Gail now really does believe that Cotton is completely innocent. Right. And Kenny's, you know, he's asking her, do you want to go live? But they have, they don't have any proof. They got to mm-hmm. find proof. Yeah. And Gail is saying, it's like, I could free an innocent man. And Kenny has this look on face, on his face of like, 
Oh like, wow, God. that's a really noble thing of you doing. And she just fucks it all up by saying, you know what that could do in my book sales? And, then, and you, literally, you literally see the smile on his face just descend into a... With with a slap to his face. Uh, and then she slaps him in the face like, Come like on, hello, let's go. you know. So in school, you know, Stu's there with Tatum and Sydney at their yeah. lockers talking about the whole place is up and down. Stu, Stu is still so desensitized to this. He's like, look at this place. It's like Christmas. He, he has no fucking, like... Tact or no, no self sensitivity, no self control, no filter, and like like as you bring him the candy man, no, his heart broken. Yeah, talk about Billy because Billy got out of jail. Yeah, they had no evidence no, to hold him. They had to release him, but it's at that point where somebody wearing a ghost face costume is just running down the halls, causing a scene, just screaming at the top of their lungs, screaming and waving his hands. You know, it's another student just playing a sick joke. Yeah, uh, Stu is laughing his ass off. Sydney's not entertained. No. Are you not entertained? She's not. Yeah. Can we look at this place? It's like Christmas. <laughs> Stupidity League says Tatum, and she smacks up Stu in the head with, with her lollipop. lollipop. Like, and that was like a fucking uh, blow pop, man. Like, that was, cracked that's, him. Like, those were big. That's not those little, like, fucking dum uh, dum pops. Exactly. At the doctor's office. Because um, they cheap out on the blow pops there. Fucking and bad. so Sydney runs away, like, almost in tears at this point. And who does she runs into? Billy. Billy. And they start talking, you know? And says, I know you didn't do it. Billy says, oh, yeah, I scared him away. She says, the killer called me last night. Well, it could have been me. I was in jail. And he holds up his hand, and you still see some fingerprint ink. uh, On his fingertips there. Yeah, that he clearly tried to wash off because he was printed. Yeah. So, you know, they start talking, and Billy just says every wrong thing from this point. Yeah, it's like, you won't touch me and you accuse me of murder? Like, really? You're going to bring up the fact that she doesn't have sex with you now? Yeah. And reminds her of the death of her mother, which is one year ago the next day. Yeah, and like, and he says, like, why don't you just get over it? <laughs> yeah, he's basically trying to tell her it's been a year. Just get over it. Like, when my mom left, I knew she wasn't coming back. It's like, and then, but Sydney says, like, well, your mom left town. She's not buried in a cemetery somewhere. My mom's yeah. coming back. Oh, my mom's dead. And she's never coming back. And okay, she... bad analogy. Yeah, it's that simple. Bad analogy. You yeah. fucking dumbass. Like, it's like. You're right. If anything, the worst thing you could say in a conversation like this, he does utter here. He says every wrong thing. And then when she leaves, like, I'm sorry that my um, fragile existence is a... Uh, it's oh, such a drain on your personal life. Yeah. Something to those lines. So she runs away. He tries to get her to come back. And then he just smacks himself in the head like, stupid. So she goes to the ladies' room, tries to compose herself, mm-hmm. and overhears... These two students, these two girls talk about it, like she's totally making it up. So Sydney quickly runs into a stall and listens to it. It's your your almost archetypical bitchy cunty cheerleader. Right. Like she's dressed up in a cheerleader outfit. Yeah, and like she's given some like so it's not vulgar her dialogue, it's not like she's swearing anything, but, but it's she's just cruel and, and mean. like and she's like literally twisting the blade. Like that's what her entire yep. like her it, her objective the scene is suggesting she killed oh suggesting she killed Steve uh Casey because she wanted Steve and yeah. M, so she killed them both. Oh she's got a the other student says, Oh, she's got a bubble boy boyfriend Billy. Maybe she's a slut just like her mother. And her friend's like, Oh please leave it alone. Like she don't say it. like and, but then the cheerleader retorts like, No, it's a common fact to her that she was she used the word, she was a slut, that she slept all over town and everything. And that's actually an important line right there because now we're starting to really establish that like Sydney's mother did had have a, a fucking she had a she had a second life. Yeah. She had a bad reputation for doing all that. Mm. Sydney wanted to deny it because she loved her mother so much. But right. this is going along with you know, helping to helping to continue Sydney down the path of self doubt as to whether or not, you know, it could have been cotton weary. 
and you could also because she said my mother would never have touched him, you right? Know? But you also could almost like see as different way, like you know, like as you grow up, you realize your family's not perfect, mm-hmm. and it's with that coming realization that like your family screwed up, but everybody's family screwed up. You thought your life was perfect and everything. It's almost like this is like the like the darkest version of that. Yeah. That like, oh, that your mother had a second life and she was murdered because of it. Or- well, this isn't like an aunt or an or distant family. This is your parent, you yeah. know. And as Sydney will say later on, you know, it's probably it's very much why Sydney is the way she is with her boyfriend. Why she's so cold and can be so cold and distant at times. Yeah, and then she she feels uncomfortable trying to be intimate with him. Yes. And so the two uh, girls leave. Sydney's, you know, just trying to hold back the tears. She leaves us all, and she's like, I guess she's going to try and apply makeup to, like, to cover up the fact that like it might be running at this point. And we hear kind of whispers of, like, sound like her voice is... And she's like, is somebody Around. there? And you just hear, you just see a fan blowing, like, stuff in there. It's yeah, like, she, oh. she looks on the stalls, there's no feet. She looks, there's an exhaust fan for the bathroom blowing. It could have been that. Yeah. So she goes back to what she was doing, but... Now she knows somebody's in there, so she goes to look under the stalls again. That's when we see two boots and jeans two, down black, the stall. Two black boots and a pair of jeans come down, and a fucking the gown, the, the little like robish gown descend beneath that. Like, oh fuck, he's in there with her. She knows. You hear the stall creak open, and he and boom. And I love it. She she runs. She has to run past him to get to the front, to the exit of this bathroom. And she gives a near picture perfect baseball slide. Yeah, man. she like slides into home. Like, she fucking here. well, she took out the garbage can on the way out. She was home, and then she ran out the bathroom home free. Now, do you think that's a killer or that's another prank? Um, I kind of think that that might have been another prank because he has a knife. Well, in he, all right. Well, here's the thing though: to admit. To really go into it would be going into spoiler territory right now. Right. So I think I'm going to hold off on that. Ask me that again after we get to that point. Okay. But but speaking of pranks, we did jump over a scene here where two of the pranksters are pulled into the principal's office with uh, uh, Principal Hembry. Yep. And Principal Hembry, he's fucking pissed. Oh, boy, is he pissed. He's fucking pissed. He pulls the mask off of one of the students, tells him about, like, how your thieving, whoring generation makes me sick. How two of your fellow students, and he picks up a pair of scissors, starts snipping, cutting the, the mask, mask apart. But pointing it at them, like, menacingly. Like, inches away from their faces. Like, how you two fellow students are butchered, and this is how you show your respect. He tells, you're both expelled. Get out. You're both expelled. Get out. Oh, Principal Henry, that's not fair. And he just very calmly closes the door and says, you're, you're right. right. That's not, not fair. fair. To be fair would be to rip your insides out and expose you for the desensitized little shits that you are. This guy's got, like... He's got problems. This guy's got problems. All right, so here's here's another red flag being raised currently. Yeah, and, like, um, those kids going home would probably, I, I don't know, like, say they went home and told their parents, like, hey, I'm expelled, but, like, the principal pulled scissors on me. Do you think that their parents would believe him? In that era, they would probably call the principal, he'd probably explain it, and then they would probably get fucking whipped with a belt <laughs> yeah and so it's like i think that was still the era when, when like the schools actually had the power to discipline students and the parents would, would not would, question it too would much qu- would, yes would cooperate and so afterwards like tatum meets up with uh no no we have gail meeting up with dewey yep dewey's coming dewey's responding because of what happened to sydney yeah um but Gail sees him, and she's starting to put on the charm with Dewey, asking him questions about everything. But like in between that, she's putting out like the kind of like the very nice compliments about his physique Ooh. and everything that he's good looking and everything. Yep. But she wants information how, out of him. Uh, he says how he's twenty five. She says, "Oh, my demographic is usually up to twenty four. Eleven to twenty four. Yeah. yeah. 
I just must have missed you. Yeah, and he's just like being the kind of the sheepish person that he is. He's just trying to be polite and everything. But he does give up information saying that, like, they still can't find Sydney's father. Right. And he's not ruled out as, as a suspect not being yet. A, yep. And she's like, oh, we have a serial killer on our hands. Like, well, we don't have a serial killer yet, well, yes. but we have to knock off a few more people to get that title. At that point, the principal announces that all classes have been suspended. School's been suspended. Much of the celebration there. The oh, every school. student starts cheering. Oh, yeah. that's, and fucking nowadays, kids would do that shit. You yeah, definitely. If you get like, I've been in schools when kids get the fucking snow announcements and saying how there's like, oh, like, like I was in the cafeteria one day and they were announcing that school is letting out 15 minutes early. One kid came to me and was like, "What? Do you say it was closed?" I'm like, "No, it's 15 minute, 15 minute early dismissal." I was like, oh, fuck, man. Because <laughs> it was snowing recently. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but Dewey, he he kind of had a weird little menacing, got to knock off a few more, more for that. that. Like, it's almost like, it may seem like Dewey's nervous yeah. being around her, but it was kind of kind of strange. Yeah. And then she's like, and he, he he's about to leave. He says, you're much prettier in person. He walks away. And he admits she, he likes her, too. And then she's like, you do watch the show. And I love, I love, this is such a sweet moment here when he comes like, I'm 25. I was 24 for, for a whole, whole year. year. Like, well, that, is, Gail. that is such a sweet moment right there. And it makes sense, just the natural chemistry between the two of them, why in real life the Courtney Cox and, Do- and, uh, and, uh, and Dewey, Re- and Dewey <laughs> Riley <laughs> and David Arquette got married. Yes. Actually, the movie Scream was how David Arquette and Courtney Cox met, fell in love, got married. It was because of these movies. Yeah. And so school is uh, leaving at this point. School's just missing. Tatum yeah. and Tatum, Sydney, and Stu. Stu come out. Tatum's telling Sydney it was probably just another sick prank. But Sydney's like, like, "No, it I was think him. He was yeah. there." So Stu catches up to them, hands them both a flower, and says, "Sydney, I don't know what you did." Well, they but on by, we want to say thank, thank you. you. And she's like, and Tatum's like, "Just stop it." It's like, but like, no. Impromptu part tonight in yep. my house because we're celebrating the fact that there's a curfew and everything. We're going to have a good time tonight. Stu's celebrating the suspension of classes and the curfew, so he decides to throw a little party at his house. Yeah. And Sydney. Asked like, them to bring the food. Yeah. And he's like, all right. And she's like, all right, fine. We'll, we'll, we'll go with that. We're around friends. Everything will be okay. You know? Yeah. Safety in numbers, in yep. the words of Clue. Um, but then we cut back into the school once everybody's evacuated at this point, or left, I should say, Dismissed, not evacuated. Yeah. Principal Himbree's in the office playing with the mask. The one he did not cut up, and he's yep. like, Whoa! like trying to scare himself in the mirror, but then he hears a knock on the office. And so he goes, opens the door, nobody's there. He closes the door behind him, scares himself in the mirror with yep. the mask. But this is another thing, like, you hear knocking on the door, he immediately whips around and opens the door, and gone. Yep. Like, just disappear like that. So he, so he searches the... Um, the main office. Main continues office. through. Goes out the front entrance into the hall... Into the other end of the hallway. And he's, you know, he's pissed off at this point. So he just... Damn little shits. Like, Damn little shits. And the uh, school custodian there... What'd you call me? What'd you call me? Not you, Fred. <laughs> Fred, the custodian, is played by Wes Craven, and he's wearing a very, very familiar red hat. and green striped sweater and hat. Yeah. And so, but I love, uh, uh, like, here, under his breath, like, prick. 
Yeah, like, you think it would have been more, and I can tell you that's more true to life. You know, yeah. a custodian it, called the principal a prick body. You should have called a bitch. You think it would have been, well, that's the thing. You think it would have been better if that was played by uh, a cameo by Robert England? Yeah. Well, I think it's funny with what's going to be doing. wearing like a le- one leather glove. <laughs> but I love it. Like, if you ever see the outtakes, that scene goes on with Wes Craven like mopping, mopping the, floor. the floor. And he fucking slips. He, he does. He does slip, but he does lean into it and just kind of like yeah, sprawls out the floor. You sprawl to the floor, and then you just hear, and cut. Shot like 80 <laughs> off camera and everything. It is pretty funny. But Principal Henry goes back into his office, but now his closet that was previously open is now closed. So he goes up to it, and he reaches out, rips it open. Now, this this is one of the cool things I, I, I think this movie does great, is that they do continue that slow burn horror where a lot of scenes are drawn out for maximum suspense, but yeah. they don't feel drawn out too long, fortunately. No. Everything, is, everything is nice and neat. Which is something that... I find funny, there was a note, I was watching the behind the scenes of Carlito's Way, the Brian De Palma movie, and there's that scene in, like, the billiard, like, club, where Carlito knows, like, something's not right, and that's when his cousin gets set up and get killed by the gangsters in there. When they're doing a rough cut of it, the studio exec said it was too long, and David Kep's like, oh, well, I guess we have to cut it down, and Brian De Palma's like, no, it's not long enough. And what he mean by that is, like, the tension was not ratcheted up. You can draw it as long as possible. And if you do it correctly, it'd be fine. Like that's what you think of, like the um, the ticking clock of like a bomb going off. Like it could be like two minutes, but in movie time, like it's like seven minutes go by, and all of a sudden, just thirty seconds have actually actually gone by. It's depending on how you draw it out in editing and how you raise the stakes and continue the escalation to the very end. And that's happened here. And so Principal Henry thinks like, oh, I'm just jumping at shadows, close his closet, he's gonna close his his entrance to his office. He does, but... The killer's right behind there, and he attacks. Kills Principal Hembry. Yeah. And you, as an audience member, you probably think, oh. Why? Why? More on that later. More on that later. But, but it does have my, one of my favorite shots in the movie. It was just the extreme close-up of his eye. And the reflection of Ghostface in it as yeah. schools out by Alice Cooper fades in. Oh, and we a... cut to Tatum's house where she's blasting it out her window mm-hmm. from her big stereo. And her and Sydney are having to talk about just everything that's going on, especially with her mother, and how Tatum kind of, Tatum kind of does confess that she believes all the rumors about her mother. And see, this is how characters in high school dealing with horror like should be written: not calling each other dick liquor and, and slut, and you want to see my lady lumps and my dad. I'll go tell my daddy and whatever. But yeah, like, my daddy's a sheriff. It's one. It, sh- it really shows the closeness between Tatum and Sydney, where she could talk to her that bluntly and frankly and say like, you know, you. Your mother might have been a very unhappy person because right. her father was always away on business trips. She doesn't trips. like outright accuse no. her mother, but she's like she's she realizes she's going through a minefield at this point. Yeah, but she feels like she needs to say this in order to get Sid to maybe consider the fact that I think even she knows that Sydney's starting to doubt everything that she right. previously thought was true. And it's a really great like because one of the things that like a lot of this movie is based on like who's watching who. Like, who's, like, watching each other's actions and everything. There's one shot in the scene where it's from behind, like, the um, uh, other side of the porch. I literally look through the beams of the porch watching them. And it's just, like, it's long lead, so it's kind of compressed. So it looks like somebody's just watching watching them through the beams of the porch here. And But in the scene here, Sydney gets up and says, like, maybe... Maybe the killer's still out there and Cotton really was innocent. And, like, but it's just saying, like... Before that, they're saying, like, oh, you can only hear the Richard Gere durable story so much. Uh, before you believe it's true. <laughs> I feel like I, 
other than Pretty Woman, that's the only other characteristic you know about Richard Gere in pop culture. They said they couldn't prove that the mother was a slut in court. He's like, well, that's why you can't prove a rumor. That's why it's a rumor. Yeah. And so, like, oh, you sound like a West Carpenter flick. But don't... It sounds like some shitty West Carpenter flicks. He says, you know, we're going to go out. We're going to party. We're going to have fun. So they go to leave. But as they leave in the bushes in the next house over, we see there's Ghostface watching them. In broad daylight. In broad daylight. That's one of the issues. The, the, the next scene coming up, we Not, have the same The issue. next scene has the most egregious one of it. Yeah. But... So we get a little montage of everyone in the town running into indoors, almost like a Western film, and there's about to be a duel. Yeah. And one I... runs into indoors, businesses, close the doors, lock them, hit the close sign. Yeah, and then we have a reprise of Red Right Hand in this moment yep. here, and then... Um, Dewey just drops them off to buy, you know, groceries or whatever. And he goes to speak to the sheriff. So they go in, they buy groceries, and Sydney's talking about how she feels like she's, her relationship with Billy now, how she feels like she has kind of been a bit unfair to him uh, with the whole sex stuff and mm-hmm. talking about how all this shit's affected her and whatnot. But it's funny that you say, like, a Western because he even references, like, the town of Dread Sundown, which is, like, a prototypical slasher that, that was shot in the 70s but takes place in the 40s. And it's a small Texas town where a killer stalks and, like, preys upon it. But they do it, like, it's almost like a crime procedural. Like, you have a voiceover narrator giving, like, stat updates of what happens through everything. So it does feel like a small Western town. Like, oh. Like, the the shootout's about to come. Like, we got to get behind doors. But, we, yeah, we see now Sydney's questioning. She's questioning everything at this point yeah. in her life. Like, you know, so she she seems to be loosening up to the idea of, like, actually sleeping with Billy, saying, mm-hmm. I'm not my mother. Yeah. You know, that's the thought that's going on in her but head. Like, maybe he's right that I'm just kind of, like, too uncomfortable with that. But, like, Tame, like, reiterates, like, no, maybe Billy and his penis do not deserve yep. you. And at which point they walk away, and we see reflected in the uh, frozen food, Glass door, ghost faces in the grocery store. In the grocery store, broad daylight. How did he get in? As soon as Sydney and Tatum walked in, there's a cashier right at the door. Did he kill him on the way out, too? Yeah. But what's interesting is that in the very next scene, we cut to Dewey walking to meet up with the sheriff with his ice cream, saying, Oh, where's Sydney and Gail? Oh, uh, where's Sydney and Tatum? I was just keeping an eye on them. Yeah. And the the sheriff, yeah, is like, Oh, was he, is he the one responsible for this? And. Dewey knows that the sheriff is smoking here, like, saying, I thought you quit. I did, but damn it. And He's if, getting stressed out. If you want to watch something cool, every time that the sheriff takes a drag, Dewey takes a lick from his ice cream. <laughs> and, like, literally just kind of mimes it and everything. So that's a nice little beat here in the scene. And well, we they- find out that this calls came from uh, Neil Prescott, Sydney fa- Sydney's father's cell phone. Yep, they don't want to tell Sydney yet. They're going to keep the curfew up. The plan is, you know, have roadblocks. If he's not picked up, they'll do a house-to-house. At which point, you know, uh, the sheriff finishes his cigarette, drops it to the ground, and steps on it with a pair of kind of familiar-looking black boots. Mm-hmm. The pants aren't the same, but the boots are. Right. And the way he's talking, Dewey asks him, do you think that, you know, it could have been any of these kids? He said, you know, 20 years ago, I probably would have said no. But kids today? I don't know. So he's maybe something off about him. And there is a... It was supposed to go on, like, he, Dewey, like, there's behind-the-scenes footage of, like, Dewey dropping his ice cream, and he stamps it out like a cigarette, too, but yep. they obviously didn't go with it. And he says, like, keep an eye on Sydney. Don't let her out of sight. I will. And then we go off, and we cut to the, the video store. Oh, yeah, we had the video store. Excuse me. Now, I think we've actually been saying these a little bit out of order, a but little this bit, is but... generally the plot. In the uh, the video store, Randy works at the movie rental store, which yeah. just the other day I uh, I found out the final blockbuster in existence is going to be closing soon. The one in Oregon, right? Yep, it's going to be closing. So for any of you under a certain age, you probably have no idea what we're talking about when we talk about video rental stores. 
I follow the Twitter called The Last Blockbuster, and, and they, they uh, <clears throat> every tweet is like, yeah, Netflix is cool and everything, but uh, you remember paying four ninety nine for a video for three days and everything, so it is... I love the South Park episode where Brandy buys the last blockbuster. It's a parody of The Shining. Yeah. He slowly goes crazy. Right. And so Stu comes up and... Scares the crap out of him and he drops a bunch of videos out of his hand. And, like, you even commented the fact that, like, the the video store is packed at this point. Yeah. Like, people are asking for horror movies. Like that's the, is going on, so I guess now. everybody's going to stay and die and watch a movie and order yep. order pizza and Chinese or what have you and watch a movie. So they start talking about the whole thing, uh... Randy's a bit pissed off because he still thinks it's Billy. He yeah. thinks he's the movie buff. He thinks that the father is just a big red herring that's really Billy, and mostly because he kind of wants Sydney. Yeah. Randy has a crush on Sydney. So they're talking about it more, and Randy, he's starting to get a little bit heated. He's, he's getting, he starts to rave. He starts rant. raving. And finally, he gets to the point where he just says, if they watch prom night, they save time. There's a formula to it. A, a very, very simple, simple formula. formula. Everybody's a suspect. And he yells this out loud. And, and it's custody of the video store reacting to it, all looking at him. And I love right before that, when they ask, well, why would he want to kill his girlfriend? There's always some bullshit reason to kill your girlfriend. And, and there's, the extra, out. there's an extra in the background. She's like literally in the aisle behind. Out of focus. Out of focus in the aisle behind Randy. But you she can looks see up, rec- overhears the conversation, looks, looks back around. and forth. And just starts walking away like... She shakes her head, walks away from him. walks away from him. Hilarious. Right when he says, there's always some excuse to kill your your girlfriend. girlfriend. And she's like, what? And just, it is... I don't know if that was just like on her point or was like directed her to do that, but it is hilarious to underline that scene. But anyway, after making that little bit of a scene, uh, Randy looks around and retorts, you know, father's a red herring. It's really Billy. At which point he's... You know, grabbed by the shirt. Billy grabs him by the shirt because he right. overheard him talking about him. He says, how do we know it wasn't you with your movie freaked out mind? At which point, Randy loses all of his spine and says, oh, it, you're right, Billy. It totally could be me. Yeah, because literally, like, Billy's standing right in front of him and Stu's right behind him, resting his arms on. Talking into his ear, like flicking his earlobe. Yeah, it's like, like, what, what would, would your be mo- motive be? It's the millennium. Motives are irrelevant. Yeah. Oh, millennium. Good. There's something sadistic about all fucking three of them right yeah. now, man. Uh, and just like Billy walks away and he turns to Stu and says, Tell me that's, that's not, not a, a killer. That's not a killer right there. So after after this scene, which I think I think next was actually the montage of, of the curfew going, and then going okay. to the yeah. But anyway, we get to the final act. All the kids come into Stu's house. Gail Weathers decides to follow them there because she finds out about, you know, big party going on. Yeah. And as she gets out, you know, Dewey arrives as well. Like, everyone in the house is having fun. They're looking at all the horror movies they want to watch. Anyway, like, Prom Night, Terror Train. Sydney's wondering why fucking all of them start Jamie Lee Curtis. And Jamie Kennedy, uh, Randy says it because she's the scream queen. Yep. And I love that there's a little detail in the background. One of the high school students out of focus, you see he's rolling a joint <laughs> in the background. Like, And there's people that's funneling beer and everything. Funnel, like... That's the one thing, at least in my college uh, days, like, the funnel was not bro- broken out that often. There was a lot of beer pong and everything, and, like, uh, smearing off icing each other, where you hide a uh, smearing off ice bottle, and you open, like, the fridge, it's there, like, ah, oh, God They were damn. fucking doing that in TNA around yeah. that same time, when you had the, the stable fortune, when Ric Flair was in there. Woo! They always did this thing where Ric Flair would get iced, yeah. just because they wanted to seem relevant, and Ric Flair would chug the whole fucking smeared oh. off ice. He was already 60 years old by this point. Yeah. So that no would, wonder he almost fucking died. Exactly. And so uh, Dewey and Gail enter the party together. 
Yep. Do we want to check it all out? Make sure it's all on the up and up. Gail has an ulterior motive, though. Kenny, as she grabs a coat, hands her a fucking hidden camera. Yeah. Like a very small camera. With a radio transmitter on yep. it. So as they go in, she's talking to everyone. Sydney sees her there and, just, you know, just try to ignore her. Uh, <laughs> Stu asks Tatum to go get her, to go get some more beers. From the garage. She's like, what am I, the beer wench? Yeah. So, you know, Dewey, Dewey seems to have no problem that there's all these miners drinking. Yeah, he takes a beer from like, hey, what are you doing? That ah, have fun and everything. But these kids are going to get drive later tonight, you moron. Yeah. So Gail, as she's sneaking around, she hides the camera in like the, t- the TV stand, the entertainment center. Yeah, above the VCR. Yep. So they make their way out. Tatum goes to the garage to get the uh, beer and everything. It's very cold that night. Yes. It was clear. As we said earlier, they, this must have been a cold spring because fucking... Rose McGowan's nipples you could cut glass with. They yeah. were poking out. Everyone kept asking, was there some kind of prosthetic? Like, no, it was just very cold. Yeah. So, and it's like it's become a point of parody with her and everything with that. And so she goes to the... She's reaching for the light switch. She can't really find it, but she accidentally hits the garage. And that thing's kind of rickety. It's not really working too well. Yeah. So she gets the the light, goes to the, the uh, fridge, grabs the beer out. And the door slowly starts to close as mm. she's getting the beer until it closes all the way. She gets the beer, goes to the door. Door's locked. Yep. Banging on it. No one can hear her because they've all got music playing. And the light from the garage door goes off. Yep. So, oh, shit. So she hits the, the garage, garage door, again. door, opens it. She It gets about a you know a third of the way up before it stops and closes back down. She turns around and there's Ghostface standing at the, at the door closing mm. it. He's very calm and collected. She starts talking to him like, oh, Randy, is this what he, like, you got to ditch the costume. Fucking Sid will get pissed off. And he just shakes his head no. He shakes his head no. So she goes up to him to leave, and yeah. he won't let her. It's like, oh, oh, do you want to play serial killer? And he starts nodding his head. Kind nodding of his head up and down. Do I get to play the helpless victim? Uh-huh. He nods his head again. But he's, like, slowly tilting it, yeah. you know, from one side to the other every time he does that. It's like, oh, right. Okay. Please don't, don't kill, kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. So she won't. But she tries to leave. He won't let her. She, he grabs her by the arm and starts cutting her with a knife. Yeah. She, she drops up, some of the bar, the, the, the beers on the ground. Backs up and drops the beer. He charges her. They have a little scuffle. She's able to evade him. And she hits runs him in the, the head, Hits with, him in the head with the freezer door as oh. he's running by, like clotheslines him. Picks up a couple of beers and manages to, like, chuck him at him. But when he comes back after her, she, like, back body drops him and his clothes are dry. Yeah, because when she hits him in the... The face and, like, the groin with these bottles drenching the costume with beer. But when she, like, flips him over her, fl- I flip it for real, he's automatically dry. Like, that's how fast he was going. He, fl- he was able to dry his own clothes that speed. So she goes for the uh, the little doggy door that's there in the garage to escape. Yeah. Gets herself a little bit of the way through. Apparently, as we learned in Scream Inside Story, Rose McGowan could actually fit fully yeah, she through she was there. able to crawl her way out of everything. <laughs> but in this way, it makes it sound like her... I don't know his her like her like her sides were too like wide. Or she was just like in such a panic she wasn't really like wedging her way calm she, enough like yeah. she was all tense and she was her body wasn't as calm and relaxed so she could easily crawl through it. She was yeah. in a panic and getting right. So he manages to start opening the garage door. That somehow is enough power power to powerful lift enough her. to lift even even like what a hundred and twenty pound woman hundred and ten yeah. pound woman yeah. It keeps lifting her up, and she's screaming. She's now stuck, like, hanging from it with, like, her head and, like, one shoulder through. Yeah. And it keeps going up and <laughs> squishes her Crunch. head. Now, this was another MPA cut yeah. scene, heavily cut, where they trimmed a lot of frames out. The ghost face, you know, kills her, turns the light back off, and then... No, the goes... light explodes from the... Oh, uh, yes. From the engine. The motor burning out. 
So he goes back into the house, at which point many of the partygoers are starting to leave because of the which, curfew. I know a lot of people say, like, why didn't nobody realize that um, Casey's dead? Because that's in the back of the house. Tatum's dead? Yeah, yeah, yeah Tatum's it's dead. like the side of the house or something. He, it's it's, at it's an not easy place. seen. And there's a boat parked right in front of there. Yeah, so unless you're looking for it, you're not going to see her yep. body. So Sydney's looking for Tatum. It's like, hey, it's time to go. Uh, at which point, Billy shows up. Yeah. And Billy was not supposed to have been told about this. Yeah. So, you know, Sydney's okay with it. They want to go talk. So they go Stu up to- uh, recommends that you go up to my parents and you can talk or yeah. whatever. Randy's fucking pissed off because Billy's back. Yeah. Thinking, oh, my God, I thought I had a shot with her. And Stu's like, as if. As if. Oh, oh really, Alicia? Alicia? <laughs> which he puts up a peace sign Shots right in his face. face and walks away. And Randy says, I'm going to check up on them and walks yep. away. So at this point, Gail and Dewey have already left. Gail gets back in the van where Kenny's watching. And apparently there's a long delay, like a good 30 seconds. Which is more like. 62 minutes, but whatever. Well, I mean, we had this, you know, long scene or whatever. Oh, yeah. And this is probably out of order from what we're saying. No, no, no. We're still going in order. But it's like, in real time, it would have gone longer. But for the movie time, yeah. Movie time, it's like a good 30-second delay. So they're just going to sit there, watch the party as it goes on. See if something goes wrong. See if something happens. So Billy and Sydney go upstairs to talk, you know, and she starts apologizing, really kind of explaining herself, saying that, like, she's always been afraid. She's always kind of deep down new. The rumors about her mother. But she won nothing to living do with in that. denial at that point. Yeah, and how she was always afraid to express her sexuality and intimacy in any way because she was so afraid she'd become like that. Mm-hmm. And Billy really does understand, you know, he he understands about that. And they talk about how, you know, life's not really a movie. This isn't a movie, it's real life. He says, no, no life life's is one, one big, big movie, movie and everything. And it's like, like, uh, oh, like I don't want like you just your movie has to be hard. Like, why can't it be a Meg Ryan movie or a even good a porno? good porno? Like, and Bill's like, what? It's like you heard me. So she finally consents, which you always do. Yes, always must be consent consenting. Yes, and they decide to have sex. Yeah, and then we cross cut between them having sex to the the remaining partygoers watching Halloween downstairs. Yep. And at this point, Randy has to explain the rules of Halloween. Yeah, uh, oh, the, the rules, rules of horror of, movies. Yep, they're watching Halloween. It's asking, they're asking, like, when do we see J.B. Lee's breasts? You know, and like, breasts not like until 1983. Three in training training places. places. So, as they're talking about all the sex, you know, Randy says, "You can never you like this. It's a rule. You have sex. What do you mean the rule? You don't know the rules." You know, he pauses the movie right before Michael Myers punches the knife into Bob, pinning yeah. him to the wall. He gets pissed off. So that's when Randy explains the rules of horror movies. Mm. The rules of horror movies built on the many tropes that you see, yeah. almost coincidentally. I mean, I guess a good writing technique is a good writing technique. Right, which led to people believing that at least the 80s like slash movies, like a lot of the killers are like very Puritan and very Reagan-esque, where it's like sex equals death. I mean, hell, even J- Jason X, the sounds of orgasms reanimate his body. Yeah. So, so Bill, uh, Randy establishes the first rule is you can never have sex, which everyone Booze. booze and throws popcorn Sex at him. equals death. It's a scene. Second rule. You can never drink, drink or, or do drink. drugs. Yeah! And they all raise up they the beers. Yeah. beers and they, they clink them and then they have a drink on that. Yep. It's a sin. It's an extension of one. The third one, never, never ever, ever under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Because you, you won't, won't be back. Be. At which point, Stu, getting, getting up to the beer, says, you want one? Yeah, yeah sure. I'll, I'll be, be right, right back. back. And everyone oh. just harasses him. So, you know, Billy and Sydney are still having their uh, lovemaking session. Yeah. Um... Gail and Kenny are watching this bored out of their fucking minds. They're watching the whole rules 
speech. And like Kenny's examining a he's Cheeto at that che- point. He's like playing with a Cheeto, like like the fucking like it's a fucking starship or something. <laughs> yeah, he's waving it around the sky. At which point, there's a knock on their van. He quickly turns it off because they know what they're doing is illegal, bad. maybe. Um, it's Dewey. Dewey says that there's a mysterious car, you know, in the woods. Uh, like a mile down the road, and he's gonna go investigate it. And Gail's asking, like, why? Like, oh, do you want? Would you like to accompany me? It's like, sure, if it's safe. It's, it's something. It's kind of fucking creepy, you know. Dewey's even asking, like, in a creepy way, like, oh, you're scared. Yeah. Holds the flashlight up to face. Yeah, scared are you? Like, scared no, are you? So she decides so to walk with these high heels on too. Yeah, like, and like I, I even pointed this out to him when we were watching it. Like, the Courtney Cox, like her. Fists are like kind of bald at this point, and everything. And she's like, she's wearing a dress, like her, like her one, like her two-piece suit, and she's got her leather jacket over it, and it's about the same length as that. You can tell she's probably freezing in the, uh, mid-spring here, doing this everything. Yeah, like, and so Dewey and and Gail go, down. like, you know, he's asking it because he because he likes her, like, you know, he likes her, but there's something just off about this. You don't ask a regular civilian, you know. Yeah, you want to go and investigate a possible crime scene. Yeah, so who's also a member of the news? Yeah, so. Sydney and Billy make love. She takes off her top right to the, the cut of them watching uh, PJ Souls in Halloween when she exposes herself. Yeah. So they keep. But do- we don't see yeah. Nev Campbell uh, topless or anything, which is nope. a thing that would prevail to most of her movies and everything that like it would be body doubles for it until like a movie later on in her career and everything. Um, and so they do the do. But at that point, when they're like. Watching the guys downstairs are watching it when Laurie Strode's about to walk across the street to investigate the um, the the Wallaces. That's when they get a phone call and Jamie answers the phone. Oh, Jamie Kennedy's character Randy, Randy, answers, the phone. Randy answers someone else's phone that he's not supposed to be answering because he's his a house. curfew. Uh, he's visibly drunk. Yeah, hello. And audibly drunk. Hello. Yeah. Holy shit. He turns to them. It's I guess it's the school or somebody. Somebody who's friends with them. Somebody reporting that. They found Principal Hembry murdered. He was hanging from the goalpost. And so this is obviously a plot point just to get everybody else out of the this house. This is our setup and payoff. The payoff is that all the, all the guys that are there at the party. Let's go see it before they come down. Yeah, right. Let's go try and see if we're like more of the sick, desensitized people. So they all drunkenly get in their cars, speed off. And zip off. out of there. And Kenny, like, Kenny see, like, he sees them all talking on the, you know, like Randy answering the phone, but because of the delay, they already start to leave and he's just looking around like, oh shit. And then, like, <clears throat> I remember watching this once with the close catches on and they're all like in their cars, they're humming, they're humming the Ride of the Valkyries. <laughs> and then somebody yells at like ADR, like, hi, oh, sober, let's go! As they zip on down the road, as they come bombing out of Stu's uh, front yard. Yep, so they zip on down the road. Uh, we come back to. Dewey and Gail, who are just walking down the road, having their cute little innocent conversations when we see the cars speeding by, and Dewey tries to flag him down to slow down, but they're so fucking drunk and hyped up to go see this. They almost run him over. They almost run him over, and the two of them go tumbling down a hill, and they land on each other. Yeah. And, you know, did they kiss? I can't remember. They do kiss. They do kiss. It's like, I'm sorry. Like, like, and they like, and they just kind of laugh, and they just kind of, they just go into the moment they kiss. And they stop, and it's and Gail looks Gail over, and she's like, "Is that says, what you're looking for?" He says, "All my." He's still looking at her, saying, "All, All my, my life. life." And she's like, "No, look here." And then they find it, the the car, they found the car that was parked in the woods. It's Neil Prescott's car. I'm pretty sure my mom had that exact car at one point. That kind of like Mercury sedan or everything. Oh shit! Uh, um, the um, station wagon, I should say. And so that's why I always think of when I see that moment here. But then they realize it's Neil Prescott's car. And Dewey's like, worried as hell. What the hell is he doing here? Yeah. And so they run back to Stu's house. They're on their way back. Yep. So 
Sydney and Billy have finished. Mm-hmm. Sydney, she gets the idea, like, and you, and it's, I love this moment here where they're just kind of putting their clothes on, and it's a certain reality that most people don't tell you about the first time you have sex or anything. Like, there's kind of like you think uh, you, your whole life you're building up that moment, like, oh, I lose my virginity and everything, but then it's gone, it's over, and you're just kind of like, oh, that's that. I didn't have that moment. No, you didn't have that kind of moment of like, no. Oh, we hung out a little while longer and made out a little more. No, no, yeah. I mean, like, if it was cuddling and everything, we was all good for a while. No, no, I'm saying, like, like uh, after the first time done, like, oh, wow. I okay. had a cigarette with her, and I don't even smoke. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it was just, like, after that, like, after that first time it was done for, like, me, like, oh, wow. And then we continued to do it several more times that night. Anyway, but right. this is when... Uh, <laughs> Sydney asks the question when she's brushing her hair, she puts her the, the brush down on the table, the night table next to the bed. She sees a phone and asks, like, she asks Billy, who'd you call? Well, what do you mean? In jail, they gave you one phone call. Who did you call? And he says, oh, I called my dad. It's like, no, the sheriff called your dad. Who? And, but Billy retorts, like, no, my call, he didn't answer. And But Billy asks, like, you still think I, it's me. I you? thought to myself when I first saw this, like, he could have just elaborated. It's like, yeah, the sheriff didn't tell me he already called my dad. Mm-hmm. So when I called, he was already on his way. Mm-hmm. He could have reiterated that, and that's a pretty easy fix. No, yeah, but, like, it's meant to really highlight the fact, like, he's looking very suspicious right now. Yep. And how he's acting here, too. And he's getting he's getting agitated now because it's like, we just had sex, and now you're, like, totally questioning me. Like, he's get, he, like, gets up on the bed and is looking at her like, what do I have to do to prove to you that I'm innocent? And she's and- looking at him like, oh, my God, like, scared. It's like, what? Billy, look out behind you. Ghostface comes by and starts stabbing Billy. Vroom, so I guess, vroom, that, vroom. guess that answered that question. Yeah. <clears throat> he turns around like, oh, Sydney collapses. Ghostface then does his signature wiping of the blood off, off, of, off, off of, the, of the knife. Yeah, with a little squeak and he, everything. He, like, holds the knife out, grips it with, like, his thumb and behind it, an index finger, and just very, very, very uh, cleanly wipes it right off. Yeah. All off in one shot. But somehow doesn't get blood on anything that he touches after that. Yeah. This movie's stupid. Continuity. <laughs> and so the chase begins around Stu's house and everything, and she try- locks him in the bedroom and he runs across the house, but he appears to know the house very well. There's and- a secondary way out of that area. Yeah. Follows her up into, like, the attic area where right. she blocks him off. Mm-hmm. She manages to climb through a window at the top, but he gets in, goes to grab her. She fights fights him off, but he lets go of her, and she falls out the window and lands on their boat, yeah. which is covered up. Luckily, it was covered up and didn't land on just on the... The pavement. Yeah. That would have fucking sucked. So she rolls off the boat, looks up. She's in front of the garage, and she finds Tatum's body. Tatum's body's there, her head crushed, and the killer's gone. Yep. And... She runs away. Yeah. Runs away, and it just gets away to the street, at which point Dewey and Gail have now returned. Now, before that... Oh, uh, yes. Jamie Kennedy's now very drunk. Randy's very drunk, watching Halloween as Laurie Strode's approaching the room where Andy's kind of spread out and everything. And he's like, Jamie, look well, behind. Jamie's behind. He's like narrating himself. Like when you watch a movie and you kind of narrate to yourself what's going to happen. And it's that point where it's mirrored because of the killer coming in trying to do stalking yep. Randy. He's telling Jamie Lee Curtis on the TV, behind you. And Ghostface is right Jamie behind Jamie Kennedy him. behind him. They're the killer. about to yep. kill him. He's raising the knife very slowly like he's going to come down. At which point he hears Sydney screaming for help outside. So he's he's found Sydney. So he leaves Randy alone, goes out there. Sydney makes it to Kenny's van. She's banging on the van. Let me in. Let me please help. He's, he's here. waking Kenny up at this waking point. Waking up. Pulls her in. They look at the hidden camera footage. He's in there, you know. And then they see 
they see Ghostface leave, and then Kenny realizes, oh, shit, there's a 30-second delay. He turns back around to... <clears throat> opens um, a van door, turns back around, and gets his fucking throat slashed. Another MPAA moment, because like, there was more... Where it held, on, it held on Kenny's face, like the look of, like... Shock at this Shock point. and pain. So Kenny, he falls to the ground with his throat But he points to the clothes, like... He points to the door to like tell her to close it, like lock yeah. herself in. She goes to close it, but he manages to stab her in the shoulder, shoulder right before she gets it closed. She sneaks through the back of the van because there's like an area where equipment is set up right by the back doors, and yeah. there's like a little opening. I guess you could store shit or crawl through. Yeah, she crawls through out the back. Goes, goes to follow through, and he gets stuck. Fall through, he gets kind of stuck, and you see him like slam his hand down, it. like he's pissed. So he runs, a, you know. And Sydney goes running off into the woods. Yep. So. She goes off running to the woods. Gail and Dewey finally arrive back. And I feel bad for Courtney Cox because she's, like, trying to run the same in pace high heels. in high heels. And so... Dewey goes to investigate the house. Mm-hmm. He goes in and with the with his gun drawn and everything. And they really, really, really did shoot this amazingly well to what was going on at that scene in Halloween on the TV. Dewey hears the sound of the Halloween still playing on the TV that Randy in was watching. Room, yeah. Uh, Randy's gone at this point. Mm-hmm. He went to, we don't know what happened to him. And Dewey's scared shitless at this point. He's like waving his gun around, yeah. hoping the God. But he's also catch. looking in closets and it's, it's so well to the cadence of what's happening in that scene. Like Don. Yeah. Da Don. Yep. And when like Michael Myers strikes and everything. Mm-hmm. So Gail out there, she, you know, tries to get on the phone to call the cops. She's. Opens the van. She's looking for Kenny, but she sees blood all over the ground. And no Kenny. No Kenny. So she gets in, gets into the front seat. She starts dying on her gigantic cell phone. The gigantic, like, 80s-style cell phone. This is, like, not even a 90s cell phone. This is an 80s cell phone. She gets 911, and she's about to speak into it, but that's when Randy comes up and says, What's up? He's all drunk. And she startled the hell him. bashing him in the head with the phone. Now, today, you look at your cell phone, you look at your smartphone the wrong way, and it'll crack. Yeah. Here... This is when she could literally kill somebody with a cell phone. This is a, they should have had that as a slasher movie, the cell phone killer. Yeah. And so she turns on the van, goes to leave, but there's like something all over the windshield. Tries she must all over the windshield, but she can't run it off. But she turns, turns on the, the wipers, windshield wiper it's and blood. Oh, she's like freaked out. So she hits it in reverse, speeds back. And when she stops after you know pulling out reverse, Kenny's body slumps down onto the windshield. So you had to have some kind of upper body strength to lift that fat fuck on top of it. <laughs> yeah. And I love it when she's driving away and like he's still like hanging on and the live Gale. I'm, I'm sorry, really Kenny, sorry, but please get off my fucking windshield! And his body goes flying, flying off. Flying off into a fence. I feel bad for that stunt man. <laughs> I mean, I hope it was the... I hope it was a uh, a dummy and not a stuntman, no. but who knows? So she's speeding down the road, but she sees Sydney flagging her down, doesn't notice her until like the last minute, and swerves and goes down like a little hill and crashes head on into a tree. And like like going from thirty to zero, yeah, like boom. that. So Sydney manages to to make her way back. Right. She sees Dewey stumbling out of the front entrance of Stu's house, but he's like. Sydney, Sydney, and he pops like, over. He like he's tired almost. And because he's, he's been stabbed in the back. He's got the knife is sticking out of his back. So Ghostface walks out, Yanks grabs the knife out, wipes it off. Sydney runs into like his little police cruiser right there, locks all the doors. And she thinks she's safe, but she, she's safe. she but goes to turn the keys, but Ghostface he, taps he, on the window. Very mockingly. Yeah. Taps on the window with his knife, holds up his hand, he's opens got, it, and he's holding the keys. So he starts waving them right in front of her. And then just ducks out of frame. Ducks beneath the car out of frame. So he's looking around. Safety. All of a sudden. And now this was an older style, like station wagon type of car. So if, it was like it used to be like if you unlocked one door, you locked all the doors. 
Like you suck in the keyhole, you turn it. All no, no, way. no. This is one where you undo one e- each individually. Okay. This is like like my great aunt, my grandma used to have one, and it had the locks where it was like the little metal rod that stuck up. Yeah. And you had to physically push it down to mm-hmm. lock it. So she's looking around. So all of a sudden, she sees the passenger lock, passenger door lock pop up. Mm-hmm. Quickly locks it. Looks around some more. She's she's the the driver's side door. Driver's side door locks it. All of a sudden, she hears the radio. Police radio, another AD, uh, typical Stock, uh, dispatch noise. But while she's doing this in the background, out of focus, we see the rear of the station, the police wagon open up very yeah. slowly. Like, oh shit! Mm-hmm. She gets on the radio, starts telling, you know, please come to Stu's house, blah blah blah, Turner Lane or whatever. And goes face attacks her. He grabs her and chokes her. Very reminiscent of Michael Annie, Myers, of Michael Myers Halloween. choking Annie Brackett right. to death. But she doesn't feel the truck. Weight shift with him crawling into the truck whatsoever. No, apparently he's made of air. Yeah, he's lighter than air. She fights away, manages to get out. You know, runs to the house, but he's gone already. Like, holy again. shit! What the hell? So as she gets up to Dewey's body, she pulls out his gun. We hear Sydney. Mm. It's Randy. He's coming. Oh, Sydney! Holy Jesus! We got the fu-. Randy knows that fucking everyone's getting killed now. That's when Stu appears. Stu runs around, and the two of them start blaming each other. And real cool continuity fact. Stu is covered in sweat. Mm. Mm-hmm. And but like, it's as like, if he's been running around a lot. Yeah. From place to place. And so Sydney's going the gun back and forth. Any, mini, mini, well, the two of them are implicating each other. Literally, like, point literally the pointing at each other. The finger at each other. And then she's like, she "Fuck you the, both! Yeah, fuck you both!" Locks them <laughs> both outside. Randy continues to bang on the door. She said, "Go away!" And I said to you while we were watching, "Like, it's not your house. It's kind of." Stu's house. house, so you're you're trespassing right now, lady. Exactly. But that's when Billy reappears at the top of the stairs, saying Sydney, and he goes th- ass of a tea kettle we, down the stairs. We thought Billy was dead, but he's still alive, bleeding, very weak. He falls down the stairs. She helps him up. They go to the door. He says, "Oh, give me the gun. It'll be okay." She gives him the gun, trusting him. He unlocks the door. Randy comes in. He unlocks. He locks it back. He says, "Let's him in." Locks him. Stu's flipped. He's gone mad. Billy turns, turns to the camera. He does. He does. He pulls a heel turn right here. He pulls a heel very menacingly, looks at the camera, and repeats that classic line, we all go a little mad sometimes. Raises the gun and shoots Randy right in the shoulder. <laughs> and I love it. It's like, he, he I, it's such a probably realistic moment where he's on the floor reacting to it. He's like, oh. <laughs> but uh, Billy then scratches his head as Randy, as uh, Sydney goes to look at Randy. Anthony Perkins. Psycho. psycho. Billy was the killer all along. And he licks his finger like, mmm, corn syrup. Same thing they use for pig's blood and carry. Mm-hmm. She now, gets up to run away and it's into the kitchen. That's what well, she Well, now, you asked me before when we were watching this, was, was, did Billy, he stab him for real? Yeah. Because now it's like, Billy was stabbed by, Billy's the killer, but he was stabbed by Ghostface. Mm-hmm. We do find out who his partner was in just a second, mm-hmm. but you asked me before, was that, Faked, or did he stab him for real? Mm. And the fact that he licks his finger and says pig's blood, uh, corn syrup, same thing they use for pig's blood and carry, it could be debated. Maybe they were using like a prop or something. Mm. I don't know. I kind of feel, based on the next scene as they reveal everything, he might have just stabbed him for real, but gently. Yeah. And Billy acted out the next part. But Sydney goes to run to leave the room and she runs into Stu. Right. And Stu's like, he's the killer. He's the killer. And that's when Stu holds up to holds up a little voice. A little white electronic box talks into it. Surprise, Sydney. Surprise, Sydney. In There's two voice. killers. We had two killers. Now, yep. I have to ask. Okay. 
Did you ever want that little white box? You think that I was, fucking wanted that thing so more than badly, life right? And something I wanted, like like oh, because you prank call your friends with that or everything. I wanted. I had an elaborate plan with one of my stepbrothers to prank my stepsister with an actual like scream attack because oh, I boy. had the costume. I wanted to get my hands on that, and we had some elaborate. Well, I would hide in the hallway closet. He would be outside with like the other cordless phone on mute, listening yeah. into everything. I'd be in the closet with the cordless phone talking into this thing, mm-hmm. and he'd be the one, like, knocking on the door, moving shit, scaring her. And when she's right in place, I would have popped out of the closet right in the front and chased her around the fucking house. Oh, my God. It never happened, though, because I never bought – I never actually got to buy that. Oh. So – and you had asked me before, now that we've revealed who the killers are, billions too, was the bathroom attack at the school a prank? It's weird because if it wasn't, it's almost a continuity error because we clearly see where Billy is and we clearly see where Stu was in that same scene. He was with Tatum at their lockers. So that means that Stu would have had to have somehow gotten away from Tatum, gone like around the entire fucking building if there was a way, mm-hmm. snuck in the bathroom with the ghost fake costume, changed into the boots and pants. Yeah. And hidden the stall because, from the looks of it, it looked like Sydney went straight to the bathroom. Right. How would he have had time to get in there? And the thing is, with the pranker, Either prankster, there was no music cue for when they were running down the hallway. Here in the bathroom, there was a music stab yeah. and, and everything. So I don't know if that was just a false like way of doing it. But now here's another question: Do we have two killers? I think that the bathroom scene was also added because that was one of the things that Bob Weinstein had said, where you have this long stretch where nothing happens. Yeah. Um, but it does create an interesting, maybe continuity error. Right. So here's the thing. Like, okay, let's go back to the beginning with Casey and Steve. Who do you think's on the phone and who do you think is actually doing the killing? I think that Billy's on the phone and I think that Stu's doing the killing because I feel that, like, if they were going to pick someone to start this whole ball rolling with, mm-hmm. like, they, obviously you needed to start the whole idea that there's a murder afoot. Right. You need to get establish that with everyone. I think Stu is the killer because part of what they said was that Stu dated Casey briefly and she dumped him for Steve. Yeah. So if you're going to pick a target to start this whole ball rolling, why not pick someone that you have maybe a personal problem with? Right. And and that could have been when she recognized, when Casey at the beginning pulled off the mask and recognized him. Right. And then saying Skeeter um, is not that tall, but like you think of the killer who's towering over Drew Barrymore, that's somebody who's more akin to Matthew Lillard's height. Now, what about Sydney's attack? Sydney's attack? That might have actually just been Billy working solo. Or Billy working with, or still on the phone, because Billy had, you know, the boots and pants he was wearing. Yeah. Obviously, this was part of their plan to make him the red herring mm. to prove that he's not really the killer. Right. You know, like he had to look like it first so that they would investigate him and find out, okay, he's clean. Yeah. So maybe it was Stu was on the phone, Billy was doing the kill, mm. and Stu was almost there as like the fucking cleanup man. Right. You know? And so then we get to here, and then obviously Billy's incapacitated, and like at this point, so it's all Stu at this point killing all, like Stu probably killed Tatum. Oh, yeah. And then killing everybody else that's happened since Well, actually, then. truthfully, you think Billy did it? I think Billy did it because Stu was in the party. Oh. He asked her to get the beer. He was in the party, and they did the whole rules thing. Right. And even when more of the kids left, he said, oh, wonder where's Tatum? Oh, she probably got pissed at me and bailed. Yeah. And Billy showed up right after that point. Ah, good point. You probably, Billy, probably right. Billy was not at the party officially at this point. Yeah. 
So I think that Billy killed Tatum. Okay. Probably because so, Stu wouldn't have had the heart to do it. No, probably not. As he crazy probably, as he was, he could. By, as, he probably did still love her. Yeah. As, as crazy as he was, he probably knew that this was out of necessity, but he wasn't going to do it himself. And so then we have this, the big kitchen scene here with uh, Stu and Billy tormenting Sydney here. Yep. And we reveal that, like, she asked him why you do it, and just like, why? 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 You, you ever find out why Hannibal Lecter people? Just well, saying, like, oh, the, it's better. The, the often horror movie trope is where the killer doesn't have a motive. Yeah. But then he offers a, a possible motive here is that, that Billy's mother left because she found out her husband was sleeping with Maureen. Yep. That was Billy's motive. And it's even... A shock to Stu, who just looks like he's like he's had yeah, like a- like Sydney's her like mouth, her like jaw drops, like like she had no idea, like like all the like the rumors of her mother are the thing that like got her killed, and she wanted to deny it, but she knew it was true, and now she's finding out how deep it really went. Yeah, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and like it's maybe even he didn't tell Stu because the look on Stu's face of shock, shock, like, like oh whoa. And because, it, like, both of them are, are the reaction of the audience right there. Yeah. And he just, he defends his decision. Like, paternal Batman can seriously fuck up anybody and even convince you to have sex with a psychopath. And they reveal the fact that we have Neil Prescott tied up. Yep. You they, gave it up. Well, they said first, he gave it up, said, now you got to die. Like, sticking to this horror movie obsession they have. Yeah. And they showed, oh, we got a surprise for you. It's a scream, baby. And literally, like, <laughs> he's... Spitting his lines spit is flying out of his mouth. But yes, they they are the reason why no one could find Sydney's father. They fucking, I guess, got a hold of him, mm-hmm. hit hit his car in the woods, tied him up at fucking Stu's house while his parents were away. Yeah, and because he's you know beaten and bloodied and bound by duct tape, just mm-hmm. like the boyfriend Stephen at the beginning. Right, and you know. uh Stu takes the voice box and says, "Guess we won't be needing this anymore." Puts it in the pocket yeah. and the cell phone. That they had been using the whole time that they cloned to be Neil's. Yeah. Put in the pocket. And they reveal the whole plan was going to be then he's going to kill you. Like, their idea was that this guy, the year anniversary of his wife's death made him snap. Yeah. And kill all these people. Something that the sheriff had theorized in, in the earlier scene. Mm-hmm. Where he's going to then kill Sidney and then kill himself out of all the grief. And the two of them will survive. And they would have been wounded but not dead. Wounded but not dead. Which leads to... The next stab- part of the plan. Which they have to look like they've been injured. Yep. So they have to stab each other multiple times in multiple places. Now, here's the part that I don't get is why didn't they kill Sydney first before they did, before they willingly wounded themselves and make themselves vul- I know it's a movie. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a movie cliche. And it's, the Bond, like, why is every Bond villain telling the plan before they kill Bond? So, yeah. And, but they realize, hey, in movies, it doesn't look like you can, you can take a stab and keep on going. But in real life... Yeah. It hurts. Yeah, it real life hurts. They tell them like stay to the side and go don't go too deep. And they start to seem to get a little pissed at each other while they're doing this, while they're stabbing each other in, you know, survivable places. Now, Stu only stabs Billy once. Billy stabs Stu multiple like times. Like four times. Yeah. But you can kinda of, I guess you that goes towards the argument where he did stab him for real up in the bedroom. Yeah. Because Billy, he's already looks like he's ready. So yeah. still he's starting to look like he's, you know, a little worse for worse wear. Worse for wear. Billy tells him to go get the gun. He goes to get the gun, but it's missing. And Billy's like, well, find fuck, it, you idiot. Where the fuck is it? And that's when we revealed that it's right Gail. Gail has the gun. And she has survived the crash. The crash. She goes over there, and she heard their whole plan, and she's going to report them. Yeah. 
But Billy very confidently says, I know something you don't. And walks pull. towards her, but she tries to pull a picture and... Tries to pull the trigger. It's not working. Nope. And he fucking kicks her right in the stomach and she flies backwards out the front door. Cracking her head. And hits like the pillar that's the the awning pillar. Hits her head and lands right next to Dewey. Mm-hmm. He goes up to her and says, it works better with the safety off. So yeah. She, so she's not trained in firearms at all, mm-hmm. clearly. Says Gail Weathers signing off, and then he pulls back the slide to chamber around and yep. everything. Still goes to tell her, like, "Oh, watch! This is gonna be great." Shit, uh, shit! You know, Sydney. What? Sydney's gone, and that's when they realize, yeah, Sydney's gone, and they're like looking around, like, "Find her, you dipshit!" But Stu's starting to come to succumb to his wounds here. Yeah, Stu's a little too injured, but the phone then rings. Uh oh! And Stu's thinking to myself, "Should I let the machine get it?" <laughs> Billy picks it up. Hello, it's Sydney with the voice boxing. What's your favorite scary movie? Yeah. And I like how they dub, like, her line and Roger L. Jackson over it to seem like she's not really using it yeah, right. Yeah, modulated everything. They did that a little bit with them when they revealed that they were using it, where right. they would do, like, a mix, because I guess they didn't have it close, close enough to their faces. So, Sydney's escaped, you know. She, she said, I'd call the police on your motherfucking ass. Billy and goes fucking nuts. He tells Stu to look for her, but he's he's slumped down in his chair in the, in the kitchen at this point. He's like, I think you cut me too deep. I think I'm, I think dying, I'm dying here, man. So Billy finally just gives him the phone and says, keep her talking. You and know? he goes to quietly investigate the house. So he's investigating. He comes towards the closet. The one closet before that, the, the, when he's like, and Stu asks, like, did you really call up, like, the police? Like, well, uh, yeah, what's going to be a motive? Like, peer pressure. I'm far too sensitive. Billy comes back, grabs the phone from him. We'll rip you up, you bitch. Looks like your fucking mother. And so you have to find me, you pansy ass mama's boy. And he throws he, the phone back at him. It, apparently, it actually slipped out of his hand and literally, really cracked Matthew Lillard in the head. And that hit me with line, the fucking phone, dick. That's an ad lib line. It is so funny. It's good. And that's when Billy starts to really lose the shit and starts tearing up the house. Yep. So he goes looking for her. He goes to the closet that Dewey looked in the beginning. Over here is Halloween still playing. Mm-hmm. The scene of Jamie Lee Curtis trapped in the closet, unlike R. Kelly. He's going to be trapped in prison very soon. Oh, I can't wait for him to get treated like that, being pissed on. Yep. And so, to do my piss on you. And this is when he looks away, and that's when Sydney dresses go face comes out with a Umbrella. And like, she hits him twice. Now, yeah, Skeet Ulrich was wearing, like, a pad underneath yeah. to protect himself. but the, he, And apparently he had had open-heart surgery when he was younger. Yep. The second time she hits him with the umbrella, she missed, and you could tell it, like, slides up by his collarbone and down. And he, oh, let's have a scream. That was real. That's legit reaction. Because the stunt person in the ghost face costume hit him in the umbrella on the on the scar that he had from open heart surgery. <laughs> yeah. That was legit. And so he drops to the ground unconscious. Sydney reveals herself under the ghost face costume. This is when Stu comes out and attacks her. Raging. She manages to, like, monkey flip his ass over, knee him in the balls. You know, he, he's got her trying to choke her. She grabs a fucking vase with a flower. It hits him in the head. He's dazed for a minute. And she then pushes the TV. With, you know, Halloween, right when Jamie Lee Curtis is about to stab Michael Myers in the closet. Yeah. She pushes it on his head. And, folks, if if you're one that's not familiar with CRTs, those fucking things are heavy. Yeah. The one we're looking at right now, I don't know how much that thing weighs. It must weigh like 80 pounds. I carried it down my basement stairs by myself. Your stairs are pretty precarious alone. I car- well, no. I carried it from my car up my pa- porch steps, through my house, and down the steps onto there. I did that three times for the three CRTs I have down here. Oh. Jesus. About so Stu's ago. fried. Stu's done. He's d- fried. The fucking TV breaks and electrocutes him to death. Mm-hmm. At which point, you know, uh, Sydney goes over to, to examine uh, the ghost face mask and everything. But that's yep. when Randy pops Randy up. Randy pops up. Startles the shit out of her. Yeah. He says, Randy, you're still alive. I've never been so happy to be a virgin. Boom! And Billy punt- comes to life and punches him right in the face. So yeah. her and her and 
Billy scuffle. Yeah. He's got her down. You know, he's choking her. He says, say hello to your mother for me. And this is when she sticks her she finger, sticks her into, finger the into, open wound into one of his chest. open, like, stab wounds in his chest. Oh. He lets out a fucking scream like, ah, and Gail shoots him. Gail has come back to her senses. And shoots him before shoots him. He, he could stab Sid. And he falls ground to the ground and kind, kind of dies, you know? Yeah. Like, remember the safety that time, you asshole. So the three survivors, you know, stand up to ask if they're okay. And all of a sudden you hear a big, boom, big commotion. No, no, before this, that. What? This is when they're looking on upon uh, Billy, and this is when Randy says, be careful. This is when the supposedly dead camera, uh, uh, villain comes back to life for one, one last scare. final scare. And Billy quickly ah! just says, ah! and Cindy shoots him in the head. Not in my movie. She Not in my movie. She quips. This is when. This is when we think it's over, but we hear this loud bang. Like, oh, my God, now what? They all scream, and it's Cindy's father, you know, breaking free from the kitchen, still tied up. She goes, she frees him, you know, they survived this night of horror, it's all over. And then we cut to the next morning, and Dewey's alive! Yep, early that morning. Gail's about to go on live, but she sees Dewey being taken out, he's still alive. Now, Dewey was actually not supposed to live. No, but they filmed this just in case. They filmed this just in case, because they, they, loved they loved him. So much. Yep, so Gail, she starts reporting about the whole night's events, and we get a nice crane shot that zooms out away from everything as the sun is rising, and cut to credits, that is scream. Oh, but before the credits... Jump scare with flash Jump scare with big flashes of, of this ghost face, a as stable if, of the of the. As series. if we're watching Halloween Six. Yeah. <laughs> and then. And that is Scream. Yeah, and then the credits start to roll. I forget what I forget which band's playing underneath here. It's a cover of what the hell is it? Whisper to a Scream. Okay. Is I that Republica the, as well? That's not Republica. I forget okay. exactly who did that. But, but Republica does play early on in the party scene oh, when yes. they first arrived. 90s, unfortunately, one-hit wonder, electronic rock band Republica. With, they had their big hit, Ready to Go. Baby, I'm ready to go. I think we listened to that. Uh, We've heard that on the radio a lot lately on a lot of the 90s stations. That's true. And, and it's a fucking awesome song. But the single that we heard this movie is uh, Drop Dead Gorgeous, another awesome song. Right. So, But, yeah, an awesome soundtrack. You have Nick Cave, you have Republica, you have... The cover of Bird Brain, like Youth of America. Yep. Uh, so, I mean, I guess the soundtrack makes up for Marco Beltrami's score. Mm-hmm. I don't. I hate to say makes up for because it, it is a good score. Yeah. It's just not one you're really going to remember after you watch this. Right. And it's still loved to this day. I remember I saw a vinyl pressing of it recently, a newer one of it, and I'm just like. <sighs> and parts of it were recycled in Halloween H2O. Yeah, definitely. So, overall thoughts on Scream Fucking 1. Scream, you know, it was this huge success. It re- it. It brought horror movie back. After that, you had every fucking copycat. You had fucking I Know What You Did Last Summer. Which was also written by Kevin Williamson. Well, that was also adapted from a book. True. Yep. You had Urban Legend. And you had Valentine. Valentine. Jeepers Creepers. Yeah. Like, horror came back. You had Halloween H2O, which was written. Even, even Jason though, X is kind of meta a little yeah, bit, too. Halloween H2O, even though it was from an earlier era, it was still written like a, like a not, late 90s horror movie. And it's it, so, horror came back in a big, bad way because of it. And so, uh, I know a lot of people say for better or for worse, because a lot of people do not like those kind of like postmodern, uh, very stylish uh, horror, uh, horror movies, but... I think since the scream is such a trendset, it's it leaves a balance above those movies. I, I'd say it's a good transition into that era. Yes, where it still has a lot of the old school slow burn, but the modern, you know, comedic, teen, modern teen driven stuff. Right. 
And so, like, uh, do you have like any meta-ness? Yeah, do you have like a favorite scene or favorite moment in the movie that you really didn't like that stands Just out that, to you? That fucking opening, man. That thing stands on its own as a short film. Yeah, with Drew Barrymore. And, and, okay, going back to that question that I posed to you earlier, do you, like now that we've gone through the entire movie, do you still think it peaks too early with the opening? Uh I'm gonna say no. Just because, like, overall, it's a great story. And even when you discover the killer's motives and everything, it still works really well as a story, even if even if it kind of demystifies things a bit. Yeah, but I think the emotional punch of the revelations at the end yeah. work more. It feels more real, that's why, because yeah. it's not a supernatural killer. Right. And in each subsequent movie, like, yes, ghost, the persona of Ghostface always comes back. But it's always a different person, and mm-hmm. it's always tied to these events. Yes. It's tied to really the consequences of the double life that Maureen Prescott led. Right. And how many people it truly affected. And just think about if this woman could could have just kept her legs closed, how many people would still be alive? Yeah, not not the slush slammer or anything no, like that. But, like, this was a real – it was a consequence of, of just the, the, the worst mentally ill fucking people being affected by the actions of someone. Yeah. By the selfish actions of someone. Right. And not and not saying that she wanted these things to happen or anything no. like that, but it's just and like an unfortunate set of circumstances that happened yep. because of it. And you it, and seriously, if you could tell the character Maureen Prescott, like, hey, you stop need to stop because this is gonna it could bite you in the ass. This is gonna backfire on more than just you. It's yeah. not only is it gonna take you, it's not only is it gonna end your life but it's going to destroy your daughter's life and end a lot more people's lives. Right. And so, yeah, I think it's still one of my all-time favorite horror movies. Definitely me too. I mean, it's like I'll put this on and I can watch it. Just, it is endlessly entertaining. It's got so much energy, so much spunk to it. And when we get to the latest sequels, there's something a little lost. It becomes a little... It works well on its own, but I really do love how they... <laughs> continue it right I feel like and they continue it strong scream 2 not as much and we'll argue that next month yeah because i, I know like suppose i really dig it you're not the biggest fan of I'm it. i'm not the biggest fan of it but, but speaking of scream 2 but the end of scary movie the screenplay is that he uh kevin williamson wrote uh like uh like a one-page treatment for yes scream 2 and scream 3 kevin williamson in his infinite wisdom when he was just writing this he wrote a little bit of a little bit of a synopsis for what Screams 2 and 3 would be. And 2 would be would take place in a college, college so following the events of this. And Scream 3 would be set like a couple of years in the future. And like there's a following and it's got like a little bit of a cult uh, abound about the ideas of these original murders and everything. Which would sort of work and everything that would happen it later on. It did in a way in the same way that like horror movies have a cult following by their fans. Yes. But yeah, and so and obviously in this movie's a rousing success and so one year later they'll get a sequel and we'll cover that. And one we... month later you'll get a sequel from yeah. us. Yes. But uh yeah, and uh any anything that you have not brought up that you want to speak about now. Well, now's the time when at least back in the Halloween we'd get into how you can watch Scream today. Yes. Um it's a little more straightforward and simple. It hasn't been re-released a million times like Halloween. I don't think uh, Anchor Bay is in charge of this, so you're not going to get a new printing every fucking six weeks. No. <laughs> but um, when it came out, it initially got a VHS release mm-hmm. in the summer of 1997, so it wasn't even out a full year before it came on home media. No. Um, it did get two Laserdisc releases. Yes. Both were uncut versions. The big thing about them was their sound formats. One supported AC3 
surround sound. Mm-hmm. The other was actually a full DTS 5.1 version. Really? I would love to find that. Now, are, are these in widescreen or are these pan scan? That I am not 100% sure of, but okay. I can look at you. I'm going to guess widescreen just because of, like, how fucking it was extensive the, yeah. I mean, because was. I, I would not be opposed to the safety. You could get the DTS one on Laserdisc that's in widescreen. I would not be opposed to rewatching it in that format just to see what's like. Yeah. So, I mean, there was there was actually an early DVD version, but mm. that was a letterboxed widescreen. So yeah. you're going to get – and, and it, we're talking like 1997 DVDs. Yeah, the first DVD was in 1997. It was Twister yes. and everything. So, But there was an Ultimate Scream collection of the whole trilogy released in 2000, um, and that had a bonus disc with, you know, more behind-the-scenes stuff. The way I recommend, though, nowadays is – Back in 2011, right before uh, Scream 4 came out in theaters, it was released on Blu-rays. There are standalone Blu-rays, but there's also what I'm holding in my hand right now, the Scream 5 film set. Now, I know what you're thinking. There's only four films. It's the Scream trilogy, and it includes two documentaries, Still Screaming and Scream the Inside Story. Mm -hmm. So this one I definitely recommend. Unfortunately, it was never re-released with Scream 4. There is a four-movie pack, yeah. but it doesn't contain these two documentaries. And I think the documentary is worth it. So I'd say pick up this and then Scream 4. And then Scream 4 individually. That's... I know it's going to look a little weird if you're, like, you like the aesthetic of having the collection all together in yep. one place. but eh, It's fine. Yeah. So, yeah. I absolutely adore this movie, and I'm so glad we decided to do this series. Yep. I am, too. All right. Now, I know you don't have any social media, so you don't have to do nope. any plugs there. Leave me alone. <laughs> if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at TimothyRooney2, my Instagram at TRooney1012, my other podcast, Please Be Wine, the RF Forum Retro Show, a podcast very similar to this where we walk down memory lane with the movie. You can follow those that show and all the other shows, the Real Fans for Real Movies Podcast Network at RFForum.com. My YouTube channel, Through the Lens Productions, which should be some new content coming very, very soon. And if you want to help support the show, leave us a five-star and a written review on iTunes. It really helps get the word up there and more people listening. And I know people who have been new listeners been like coming uh, to the show recently, and so I want to say thank you for that. It really is very appreciative. And the last thanks is, uh, Mike, uh, thank you for taking time every night to talk about Scream. Thanks for having me, buddy. All right. Come back next month as we continue to talk about the Scream. And come back to our next episode as we continue to talk about geek and pop culture. And we'll be speaking to you soon.